Torrent Borealis Paradigm Expansion Greetings from the North and welcome to a brand new forum today called From Ancient to Breakaway Civilizations. Our guest today is the investigator Walter Bosley, who's out with a new book on a fascinating explorer's secret mission to the ruins of an antediluvian civilization looking for a specific artifact. Mr. Bosley is a genuine researcher in that he follows the track wherever the evidence leads him rather than seeking to confirm a biased agenda. This is probably in part thanks to his training and background as an FBI counterintelligence specialist during the Cold War and special agent with the Air Force Office of Special Investigations. He has also been a personal security and anti-terrorism consultant for clients around the world. In addition, he has founded the Lost Continent Library Publishing Company. Apart from being a researcher into historical and occult mysteries, he's also an author of steampunk fiction, screenwriter, producer and a licensed private investigator. Check our website for his biography and full bibliography and filmography. Walt now returns to the forum for a conversation on his research into the new book The Lost Expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton, which is the second part of his trilogy Secret Missions, which concerns both the ancient and the breakaway civilizations. Welcome back to Forum Borealis, Walter. It's good to be here. I appreciate uh, coming on. Yeah, now you're officially a friend of the show. Which, Excellent. Which is what we call returners. We've had Joseph on a couple of times. We're going to have a, a few others on too. But we had to have you on too because just as the others, you're rather well versed in, in different subjects and incidentally subjects that we aim to cover here at the forum. And um, last time we were discussing this mysterious NIMSA group Mm -hmm. and already then you were teasing us with what would come with your next book, which now is out. Mm -hmm. And uh, the program today is going to be a part of the Antediluvian Civilization series we're having. Mm -hmm. So I checked your book and it's called... Not Emperor of the Wheel, but Secret Mission 2, mm-hmm. which is the mm-hmm. other series, The Lost Expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton. And I must say, Walter, you really know how to choose them, because this guy is so interesting. And uh, I actually have a book of him. I, I haven't taken much notice of him before. I, I've seen him referenced here and there, but uh, I actually have a Kama Sutra book of him, I think. And this guy, people, Sir Richard Francis Burton, we'll hear about him now from Walter, but it's really an interesting character. You really know how to pick them. Mm -hmm. So why on earth did you write about him? I've long been an admirer of Burton. Um, As a fan 
of uh, real life adventure as well as you know pulp adventure and stuff but uh, particularly a history buff and a real life adventure fan um he's just a guy who you know you can't ignore he's so out there he um you know he's a legendary explorer for the Royal Geographical Society uh just as legendary as um and ethnographer um if that's the right word and an you know anthropologist and of course as an author and translator you yeah. mentioned the we mentioned the kama sutra he provided the first english translation of the kama sutra mm-hmm. as well as i believe if not the first of the arabian nights certainly the most popular english translation and most lasting Mm-hmm. of those English translations of the Arabian Nights. And he himself was just has always been just such a fascinating, interesting character. Mm-hmm. But yet I did not know every little detail about him still. And when I stumbled upon, just in some free reading I was doing, I stumbled upon um, this issue of the missing months in his life, and, and that he was in South America in the wilderness down there in the jungle, mm. that that just immediately caught my imagination, and I wondered, what is this? I mean, you know, a guy like him, I, I've got to look closer at this, and that's really how that happened. Um, just a guy who had always interested me, I learned something new about him, and the more I dug, the more I found. Well, we ought to add that uh, this is not the uh, Hollywood uh, celebrity Richard Burton. <laughs> right, that's a Sir Richard Francis, the original Richard Burton. Yeah, yeah, he uh, probably got a lot of traction due to his name. Sure. Because th- this guy was a celebrity in, in a few generations before, and he's so fascinating. For instance, not only did he travel all over the world, so I would be amazed if he wasn't in South America, but... He spoke 40 languages. Yes. Yeah, and he, he was a linguist when he began his career in the uh, military. He went into, I should say, for the East India Company. It was one of the company military units. He became a linguist for them. Um, and when they brought him into intelligence work, they trained him as a surveyor to be uh, part of his cover. He was a legitimate um, surveyor. Of, of engineering, but he he was trained in that to um, use as a cover for intelligence activities for the East as an officer for the East India Company. And uh, his one of his very special skills was languages. He was amazing. Mm. According to Vicky, they, uh, these are the adjectives that are, are attached to him: a British explorer, geographer, translator, writer, soldier, orientalist. Cartographer, ethnologist, spy, mm-hmm. you covered that, linguist, mm-hmm. we, we mentioned that too, poet, fencer, and diplomat. So um, I have a few before I, I can fill his shoes. <laughs> they, they left a big one out, a big one out. Yeah? Which he one? was a, a Kabbalist. Right. Very right. mystic minded, but uh, yeah, he was very much from the time he was a young man. He uh, got into the Kabbalah, and my book uh, goes into that, and that's really kind of what is involved with my theory about this, so what I call lost expedition. Yeah, we'll get to that. But uh, was Burton a mason too? Um, he eventually, oh, 
you ask me off the top of my head, I, 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 I didn't get too into that. I believe that he was at one point, and I just, I, I'd like to be able to name the lodge, but I, off the top of my head, I can't remember what it was, and I'm not going to waste time scouring through the book here. But no, uh, no. He, he was definitely mentored and uh, influenced by Masons as well, so he was in that milieu. Yeah, I would expect, because uh, back at that time period, people were either Masons or Theosophists. There wasn't too many, like today, you, there's so many mystery schools and orders and whatnot that uh, many of them only exist on the internet, but they throw it after mm-hmm. you. Back then, it was hard to get in touch with people, and you know, m- many were so, so conventional. It was Catholicism or Protestantism or... What not? So, uh, so t- uh, Freemasonry and Theosophy, for those who don't know it, were like huge think tank of innovative and original uh, minded, attracted often the, the best uh, and the brightest. And I must say also, <laughs> you, you seem to have a fetish on the 19th century. Because <laughs> here uh, again, I do. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, in your fiction and your facts, I'm pretty sure that in your former life, you maybe you lived in New Orleans somewhere 50 years ago or something. Well, you know, it, it's yeah. Um, I am. I the way I refer to it is I, I am a reincarnationist. I personally have been convinced that you know uh, we do return, and I have had for many years, you know, really all my life. A certain affinity for um, the 19th century, especially the second half of it. Um, so yes, I am. I'm drawn to that era. I'm drawn to the people of that era. My next secret missions book mm. that looks like it's going to happen. I don't do these things just to write a book. I I have to find enough evidence and for me to justify a book. And the next one looks like it's moving down that road where I'm finding things that where it looks like it needs to happen. Um, and it's about another 19th century figure in mm. in all this mix. So uh, yeah, there's something there. Definitely something there for me in that regard, you know, on that personal, personal level. So, mm. okay, so um, let's turn to this book then, uh, the Lo- uh-huh. Lost Expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton. That uh, title, uh, as always, you're you're good with your titles. Thank you. Very very alluring. So. Um, I can assume we're talking about an expedition, one of his expeditions here, then that you looked into. What we're talking about actually is a missing period in which we know that he was wandering around South America, but we know uh, nothing about it really. What's inter- What's crucial about that point is that Burton is prolific in his reporting of his travels and everything he did, his Africa era, his India era. I mean, everything this man did, even while he was – he was in South America for, for a little over three years, okay? Mm. And during that time, he wrote a couple of books. He wrote lots of reports. He wrote articles. But his last six months in South America are surprisingly blank, we know a little bit about the first two months of that that he spent in Buenos Aires, but it's it's very actually very specifically a four month period where there's nothing, and all that's uh, been uh, proposed on that is, is really conjecture based on some comments 
that he made that I think were really just kind of a sleight of hand to misdirect people from what he was really doing. And so what I propose in this book is that he he indeed was on a secret expedition, hmm. which um, for reasons that the book goes into and we'll discuss a little bit here, um, was classified. And therefore, the lost expedition, because he never wrote about it publicly. I am convinced that somewhere in uh, British archives, um, particularly with the intelligence agencies, that there is um, a report of this uh, of this period he was in South America and, and on what he really saw. And I try to speculate on what that would have been based on known facts and actual historical details of his time in South America leading up to that. It's um, it's really too bad that his wife burnt his uh, diaries and notebooks. Uh, if she did, there's some question. You know, that, that was uh, a common practice back then, but even the biographers wonder, you know, how much of it she actually destroyed and who might have. Yeah. you know what survived oh, because i was imagining that uh, an important source was lost but obviously you must have managed to track him up track up some uh, traces so uh, uh, first of all what do mm-hmm. you uh, suspect that he was after i mean you already alluded to previous concepts about south america so there's mm-hmm. something here you are already aware of that you are connecting to to right. burton so yes what's that well, it has uh, long been um, uh, long been very uh, what what am I trying to say? Here? A popular theme with South America that there is or was a civilization now lost. We have ruins uh, like those at uh, Tiwanaku and and uh, Pumapunku on Lake Titicaca. We we have, of course, the historical sites Machu Picchu and and all of this that are you know virtually very popular tourist sites now, and they're very popular targets of speculation due to the technology the building the architectural technology that went into building some of these megalithic. Um, structures at these sites. And of course, um, if you read uh, Prescott's uh, uh, The History of the Conquest of Peru, he cites the, um, during the Spanish conquest, he cites Pizarro's and other Spanish reports that the, um, the local natives and the Inca, um, it's important to make a distinction, you know, between the two. Not everyone who was a native was technically an Inca, they always said, um, you know, four or five hundred years ago, that the culture that built the megalithic structures was much older than them, was a mystery to them. And, you know, this has fascinated people for, you know, several years now. And what it points to is uh, a concept that, uh, you know, many other writers and researchers have been talking about for several years now, and that's the idea of a lost civilization that um, used to be referred to simply as Atlantis, but now gets referred to as uh, something called the Atlantean League, which uh, really represents the and it, a civilization that, for lack of a better term, we'll call it Atlantis, because Plato certainly, you know, did. Mm. Um, and they went around the world um, building colonies, building cities and such, and they're the ones responsible for this 
megalithic architecture that we see, according to the theory of uh, the Atlantean League and diffusionism. Um, I happen to be um, a proponent of diffusionism and of this idea of the Atlantean League. Um, In fact, I'm a proponent of more than one um, lost civilization, uh, the Atlantean one being one of them. Uh, the other one being whatever the what we call Lemuria actually was, which was Pacific or Far East Asia based, and then of course there was the Rama Empire, which is discussed in uh, the the Ramayana and the Mahabharata and the, the ancient uh, 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 scriptures of uh, ancient lost India, mm. so to speak. And uh, you you had these civilizations. And uh, South America seems to have been a, a heart center of this uh, activity. And what I think was going on is that Burton, when you know his history, was the guy, at least on behalf of England, to go into South America and investigate uh, this general idea, investigate some of these sites, but very specifically – a site associated with a, uh, a manuscript in the Portuguese archives in Brazil um, called Manuscript 512, which seems to be at the heart of what Burton was doing in South America to begin with. Wow, yeah. Um, in part two, I think we should uh, go more deeper into to the question of these old civilizations. But already now I want to ask you, mm-hmm. If you're aware of the writings of, uh, I think he was a professor, an Argentinian professor called Augustus Le Plongeon or something like that. August, August Le, Le Plongeon? Yeah, that's the English pronunciation, I guess. I haven't, I, yeah, you know what, I'm familiar with his name and I just haven't looked at Le Plongeon's stuff in a while. Um, I, I probably need to refresh my... Uh, my exposure to Leplanc. Yeah, because he is... I've been personally interested in the question of ancient civilizations for a long, long time. But I'm a European, and uh, I guess the incentive to know the American version of this is not so strong. It's not so... I have not been so accessible to us. Mm -hmm. So I I got uh, his book called Maya Atlantis Mm -hmm. just to learn more about uh, South American uh, uh, approach. And he really proves... And remember, this was a mainstream academic. Uh, He he wrote... uh, Yes. He wrote... Back in the day, I think he lived uh, at the end of the 19th century. But he proves that there are so many similarities in words, linguistic, and in symbols, right. and in um, uh, even in building stuff, mm-hmm. uh, that you just can't... Because many people regard the word Atlantis as more or less poetic to describe the former civilization but if you if you dig into it it's actually it seems to be built on a real world that they had for their civilization sure 
Yes. So it is a fair name for the former civilization before the Ice Age. Mm-hmm. So you've been interested in in uh, the South American remnants of uh, either Atlantis or the survivor of Atlantis then. Yes. Uh, even before you, you dug into Burton. Yes, and I learned even more while doing the Burton book about the the other civilizations, of course, that ventured over to South America, and that's where I had mentioned this uh, manuscript 512, which uh, was at the heart of what Burton was doing. It is also a good intro into this lost civilization uh, conversation about South America in general. My my first opportunity to go visit there mm. was uh, – uh, actually, I when I was a consultant – um, a counterterrorism consultant. I had worked in uh, Bogota, Colombia, for about a month. When I had an opportunity in in th- that was in uh, early 2003, and in February 2003, I had the opportunity to go with David Hatcher Childress in his World Explorers Club group into Peru and Bolivia, and that was when I saw uh, Puma Punku. And Tiwanaku and Machu Picchu and all that. And I really, um, I, I was already interested. I was already a proponent. But when I saw Puma Punku, I, it was for me that, you know, I was convinced yeah. that uh, there was machining that had gone on. There was an advanced technology. There was something more there than, than meets the eye. And um, it really, uh, it was really an exciting sight to see. And uh, uh, and then I spent a couple of more months in uh, in Colombia after that trip, um, but you know more on the job. And uh, really, I I've, what little I've seen of South America, I love, and I can't wait to go back, both as a tourist traveler and uh, as a researcher. Mm-hmm. You know, but uh, because I think the heart of the mystery. Of these lost civilizations, there's plenty in North America. That I think that um, I mean, there's lots that have been there's a lot that has been found and quite frankly suppressed, um, particularly by the Smithsonian. Yeah, I've heard about that. Yeah, yeah. but I, I, I there's a maybe even a lot more in South America. Mm. I think mm. that's where um, that, at least in South America. Um, it's not as suppressed. You can go and see these things in North America. They like to just push the consensus history model and god forbid you think of or advocate anything else mm. uh, yeah, that's the way it is in uh, particularly in US academia yeah yeah we had uh, michael cremo on this show and uh, he's uh, as you know uh, been writing and, and talking about these things yes and uh, how it's this knowledge filter, this bias filter that makes them mm-hmm. think they're doing us a favor when they're <laughs> stewing away these things in basements, dark uh, storerooms and, and whatnot. Right, exactly. But, uh, and in South America, of course, is where also these uh, weird uh, alien-like skulls have appeared. I'm thinking about these elongated skulls. Right. And uh, you mentioned uh, Childress, and uh, he's been pretty exposed in the ancient aliens ancient astronauts uh, circles i don't know if that's his position though but uh, but he he's been one of that crowd uh, on the television programs but i have to say that here on this show in this series we are making although we are not 
dismissing the possibility of alien mm -hmm. contact, alien involvement, alien visits, we are of the firm conviction, due to evidence, mind you, not due to ide mm -hmm. ideology, but due to evidence, that mankind's history is far older than what we are led to believe. Oh, yes. So invoking uh, monsters from Mars isn't necessary in order to explain these things. And it, right. if we are to believe our ancestors... <laughs> It is us. Right. We are the ancient. Uh, well, here, here's the thing. The, the extraterrestrials that aren't us are certainly in the mix the farther you go back. They're in the mix. Um, knowing David to the extent that I'm acquainted with him and knowing his writings mm -hmm. and you know his ideas, David is – he leans towards a little bit more what you and I were just talking about where – a lot of this mystery really is a lost human civilization, but he's also, as I said, I, I think I think the way he sees it is is that ET is in the mix, mm. but it's by no means the answer to to most of this stuff. Mm. Um, and uh, uh, I I'm of that mind too, where it's uh, it's a lot of uh, human history. A lot of the answers are to be found in the uh, the unknown or hidden human history. Yeah. And I think that maybe a fair number of us uh, probably started somewhere else. And as you said, we are the ETs. Mm -hmm. So to speak. Yeah, that that complicates it even more because uh, we may have been been uh, if you really go back, uh, we may have, have uh, you know entered this planet from another place. But uh, then again, we may have sent out people to to other. Well, I I think my position is is that some of us came from another world. Some of us are probably indigenous to this planet. Uh, all human, all the same, yeah. you know, we're all the same species, but it, it's it's like this. We have this planet, we have all these multiple continents. Some people live in Europe, some people live in India, some people live in North America, some people, you know, live in uh, Southeast Asia or Australia, um, but we're all of the same species, right? Yeah. We just come from these different continents. We'll take it out, you know, macro it. Some of us maybe were on Mars and a long time ago came here and brought you know some of this technology with us. So it, it's really, as Ray Bradbury wrote in the Martian Chronicles, it's us. We are the Martians. Mm. And But I, I think that that indeed was a long time ago. And since that happened, humanity has – civilizations, advanced technological civilizations of humans have come and gone and are likely the answer to most of these mysteries that we're talking about. Mm, mm. Okay, we're all, you see, this is so interesting that we can't uh, help it. We're already philosophizing about that. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's get back to your book and we'll okay. continue this thread after. I'll, sure. I'll try to be a little host here, <laughs> do my duty. Manuscript 502. 99.9% .9 of us have no idea what that is. Could we start with that? Uh, yes. Manuscript 512. 512. It's a delicious, right. yeah. Yes, 512. It is a delicious little tidbit. Mm -hmm. In all of this, basically, here's the here's the story. In my book, Lost Expedition of Sir Richard Francis Burton, I go ahead and, and reprint the um, entire English translation of this document. It's in the book. And basically, here's what happened. Um, Brazil, as you know, was Portuguese. And in uh, 1753, uh, 1752, 1753, 
an expedition that was an ongoing concern uh, led by a Portuguese, uh, I, I believe he was a military officer, was out exploring for, you know, mines and resources, things like that. And they came upon, his party came upon this astounding lost city mm. that had been abandoned, you know, ages before. And this lost city had buildings and a huge arched entrance and a very strange language, strange even to this day. And uh, it looked like that there had been some destruction caused either by lightning or maybe energy generated by some technology, possibly. And upon return to uh, Rio de Janeiro, to civilization, the leader of this expedition wrote his report in full detail as to what they found and what they encountered. Um, and this was called, uh, designated, uh, Manuscript 512, or Manuscripto 512, and it was promptly filed away, buried in Portuguese archives. Hmm. Okay, And it sat there, virtually unknown to the world, for about, uh, I believe, 86 years, I think is the math on that. And uh, in 1839, um, a uh, uh, you know a government clerk type um, came across this, and you know brought a little bit of local light on it. And uh, you know somehow word got out to uh, out of Brazil to um, the English speaking world. And it, it, after a few decades, remember it was 1839 that this document was, you know, reemerged, and it wasn't until 1865 um, that it was translated into English for the first time that we know of, and that translation was done in July of 1865, and three weeks later. Uh, Sir Richard Francis Burton was on a boat ah. with a copy of that translation in his hand right. on a boat to Brazil. Now, here's what's interesting. The first English translation is credited to Isabel Burton, Richard Burton's wife, who often did, you know, work with him and, and did translations for him. Um, so he goes off to Brazil with the first English translation of this manuscript 512 that talks about this lost city in Brazil. Um, and the translation is done by his wife. And, you know, he, he spends, uh, like I said, a little over three years in South America. And before the expedition we talked about earlier, um, he goes around investigating the area um, that manuscript 512 talks about. Um, and he even writes a book titled uh, Explorations in the uh, Highlands of Brazil. Okay. And what's interesting is in the book, he never mentions Manuscript 512. He doesn't say anything about the lost city, but he's all over every inch of the zone where this, this city supposedly is located. However, in the appendix of the book, mm -hmm. he publishes – the English translation of Manuscript 512, without mentioning it in the text of the book and without mentioning anything about a lost city. But yet, he puts Manuscript 512 
in the appendix of of this book, and which I which is a, another whole issue that I go into in my book um, that I say points to. Um, uh, in fact, there's a chapter I call the smoking gun. I think this is the smoking gun as to what the the real reason why Burton went to South America. But but to get to bring it back to the lost city thing, some very interesting things about this lost city, its description, its location. Um, associate to uh, the lore of South America in lost cities. I know that there was a fever to find El Dorado. Is this uh, connected to that? It it is in a general way. Yes, the idea that um, you know this idea of El Dorado and the stories that were going around in South America that there were lost cities in the jungle with gold uh, down and, there. And all. Uh, yeah, certainly, and I cover that in the book as to uh, a particular issue about the gold and maybe its source. Um, but, but yeah, in the general sense, this was all in the fabric of what was going on there. But this manuscript 512 seems to be um, among the best evidence as well as – got to remember, at the time that manuscript 512 was uh, filed – 1753, at the time that it reemerged in 1839, at the time that it was translated into English, some of these sites were, were unknown to the public, like uh, Machu Picchu and uh, Puma Punku and, and, and such. These things were not – when Burton was there, and I argue when he went to, to Lake Titicaca and saw Puma Punku and Tiwanaku, these were little known and aspects of it were completely unknown. It's not like today – where there were tourists, you know, filing down there and going down there, and it, you know, certainly wasn't on TV. Mm. Um, these things were still, you know, m mostly supposedly unknown. Mm -hmm. So, um, but you think that he he actually found these places? Where are these places? I do speculate in the book, and I make it clear in my book that we can only speculate what the details of this expedition were. But yeah, I am convinced that he was sent there specifically to find the city of Manuscript 512, also known as the city of 1753, because that's when Portuguese explorers found it. But it it's, it's key to remember that it is an ancient, ancient city mm. of a lost civilization. Um, and I, yes, I'm convinced that he was sent there to find it and that he indeed did find it and uh, reported on it. And it remains classified. But Pumapunco is not this city, is it? No. We're still in Bolivia. That's the general area we're talking about. Um, well, I, he started um, this lost expedition. He uh, started in Brazil and then went over, uh, went west into Bolivia and then on into Peru. Because he, yeah. he emerged, we know for a fact that he emerged after this missing time, he emerged in Lima, Peru. Mm. What's the mainstream uh, oldest dating in the mainstream of uh, Machu Picchu and Pumapunku and these places? Just uh, like a f uh, a few hundred years, maybe no more than really wow. a thousand something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, it was all done by uh, the, <laughs> the Inca and the lo and yeah, and the local natives. Yeah. You know. And then they, they dragged uh, huge uh, stones from yeah, with viney ropes, <laughs> yeah. And, whips and ropes, uh, yeah, and uh, over half the yeah. continent. Yeah, typical. 
But uh, no, but one good thing I think about the ancient alien series, the TV series, is that, and I keep telling people who hasn't seen it, I always say to them, watch this series, especially the first seasons, and take notice of the mysteries they focus upon. Yes. Like, for instance, explaining how how could these strange, you know, these, let's say, these engineer feats, which we can't even replicate today. Right. Uh, how can they? Because the mysteries in themselves are genuine. The problem is their explanations is always, I'm not saying it's a, an aliens, but it's aliens. Uh, so yeah. I, I always say to people, as an advice, if you, they haven't seen it, disregard the explanation, but take a close notice of the mysteries because they are uh, genuine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, I don't always agree with the conclusions of, um, I met Giorgio, yeah. the main guy on there, about 11 years ago through David. Really nice guy. He's a smart guy, and uh, you know I don't I don't always agree with their conclusions. How often you know he, they'll come to the ancient aliens conclusion? But you're you're absolutely right. You know I was on the show since we talked last. Oh. Um, I was on the show on the Werner von Braun episode that aired July 31st. So if if your listeners search for uh, Ancient Aliens, the Nazi secret agenda episode, I'm in there towards the end, I think, in the last 20 minutes or something. Cool. I'll check that out. It's hmm. an interesting episode. It was it was fun. We didn't really get into the ancient stuff, but uh, it was fun. It was fun to be on the show. Was it the NIMSA approach that brought you there? Um, yeah, that that's what got them interested. But I, I didn't, I didn't really. Uh, I talked about that. They uh, in the interview, they had me there for about two hours, and we did cover some of that. But that's not in the von Braun episode. And the way they do it is, they just film you talking about a bunch of stuff, and then as they go through, yeah, yeah the edit, yeah, they'll yeah. put it in different episodes. So uh, if they're going to let me know if I'm going to turn up in uh, any other episodes, of course. But mm. uh, anyway, yeah, it. Uh, I personally am, am in the camp of. Uh, Human history is not what we're led to believe, and that human uh, civilization is responsible for a lot more of these mysteries than uh, aliens. So obviously there's been a previous civilization that's now lost who who built, uh, because it, it's the same thing in South America as actually all over the globe. It's that... Uh -huh. uh, the further back we go in history, the more advanced things seems. It's not this yes. linear development right. that we're trained to 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 believe, right. but it's rather a decay going on. I'd say the bottom point, at least in the West, is the medieval ages. Mm -hmm. Everything declines and declines and declines, and from the medieval ages, it, it starts uh, going up again. Yes, so, thank God. Yeah, <laughs> for the for the Renaissance. Yeah. At least it seems that way, but. Uh, sometimes I wonder even today. But uh, but if you look at South America, then uh, what's the what's the general theory? What is your thoughts about? Um, I'm, I'm guessing you're thinking it's remnants from Atlantis, but um, uh, that's part of it. Yeah, let's hear. Well, I, as I said before, I'm a diffusionist. I am convinced that many cultures around the world were going all over the world. They were seafaring. And uh, I think, uh, you know, there, there has been um, evidence of, of Roman exploration, at least along the coastal lands of South America. Uh, you know, I think the ancient Romans, I certainly think the ancient Egyptians, the ancient uh, Chinese. Phoenicians. Uh, Phoenicians, absolutely. Mm. Um, South Pacific Islanders. I, I think several African explorers. I, I think, uh, you know, any culture that was seafaring mm. uh, 
was going all over the place and certainly was part of the mix in South America. And there is evidence for that, particularly, um, you know, the farther you go north in Central America and into Mexico. Yeah. And you get into North America with the evidence there, too. But speaking of South America. And the Vikings. It, exactly. I just have to give a shout out for the Vikings. Yeah. That's proven. But you got you to gotta remember that there's only, if you go to the easternmost point, I believe, of, of Brazil, Mm-hmm. It's only about six or seven hundred miles west of Africa, the western point of Africa. See, mm-hmm. that's not really that far. If I got the mileage, I might have the number wrong there because in the book I go into the the probability that Vasco da Gama actually did just whip over those few hundred miles. I mean, he came within just a few hundred miles of... Mm. Uh, that might be where I'm getting that number. He came within just a few hundred miles of the coast of South America. And I argue that, you know, that close and on an expedition that last year's, you're going to go, you mm. know. I, I, particularly when... Um, now, remember, we're talking about uh, theoretically here. I'm coming from the point of view that these guys, these explorers had you know what was classified information then about the new world uh, yeah. because that gets into the templars and what they found you know uh, oh, oh you cover this in the book uh oh yeah i i go into that huh. in this book i i go into it in secret missions one yeah absolutely how the templars because you know the kensington runestone is now proven genuine yes there's no way around it. Yeah, and so these guys knew, um, you know, by the time you get to the, the Portuguese explorers and the Spanish conquest and all that, these guys knew what they were, Columbus knew of what course. he was going to find. And Sorry, let me just inject regarding Columbus that uh, there was this, uh, jo- the Yarl of Orkney. He was, uh, these was Viking kings, and they inherited maps from mm-hmm. the earlier Vikings, the seafarers who went to the west, yes. Greenland, where they had colonies, uh, Newfoundland, yeah, yes. Uh-huh. And uh, these maps went from the Jarl of Orkney to Sinclair and to to yep. Columbus, because I think it was a sibling of Columbus was married to someone who was, I think, the a very close relative of the Yarl of Orkney. I, I forgot these details. Well, and, but there was a line there. And he also was—he was also Templar yeah. associated yeah, too. Yeah. I mean, if you recall, you know, the sails on his uh, flagship had a big old Templar cross, which is a sure. what we call a foot stomper. <laughs> but these were Templars. You see, Sinclair was, as you probably know, he was right. the Scottish uh, protector. Yes, I go into that very deeply in uh, Secret Missions One. Oh, really? Yes. Oh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I get into Henry Sinclair's expedition to North America. Wow, I, I think I need all your books. <laughs> you cannot deduct that from the title, though, of the book. <laughs> oh, well, you know, it's there's just so much that uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you can only do. Uh, yeah, I, I guess I, I know one reviewer, because Secret Missions 1, the subtitle is The Hidden Legacy of Old California. I had one guy tell people, hey, don't be misled. The book isn't just about California and isn't just for people familiar with California history. Missions 1 actually you know, goes into uh, European Templar history and, and uh, all over North America, what the Templars were doing. So your Secret Mission series then is in a way, uh, now I understand why you call it Secret Missions. Uh-huh. I imagined agents or something, but... Uh, 
It's obviously about these explorers and this past history then, this uh, hidden history of uh, yeah, of ancient times. That's what this series is touching upon as a subject, as a theme. Yeah, well, actually, and these guys are. I, I argue that they were secret agents of the time of, right. um, the organization yeah. Uh, uh, yeah juan cabrillo was a secret uh, agent working on behalf of the templars uh, sir richard francis burton i argue was a secret agent working on behalf of a uh, covert hermetic organization as well as being a british intelligence officer yeah because that's what i thought a british intelligence but this is interesting yeah no this is at the at the heart of this are the templars and secret hermetic mm, organization wow. that uh, these guys were uh, working on behalf of um and the next guy um who i'm writing about uh it looks like it's gonna happen um there's evidence that he was an intelligence officer for his country, but he was also very much involved in this hermetic esoteric stuff. So that wouldn't be um, Crowley, it, would it? <laughs> no, 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 no. Uh, <laughs> who I'm actually kind of an admirer of. I, I think. Uh, yeah, I know you covered him in one of your other books. Yeah, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. but uh, no, no, it's not. It's not Crowley. It's another interesting guy. Okay. I think that you know these guys were all and and again you're right that's why the series is secret missions because it's looking at people that you know I'm I'm saying hey look what this guy did and look what he might have really been doing and for whom um technically you could say that empire of the wheel 2 friends from sonora that we talked about last time mm-hmm. technically in a way that's kind of unofficially the first secret missions book because of what it gets into about at a place and harry longabon mm-hmm. That was that was kind of an unofficial start of the secret missions idea, and uh, it looks like there's going to be you know a third one of these that um, in a year and a half. So right. So but then you have the other series, Empire of the Wheel, and uh, I'm already suspecting that it points to something very old and. Uh, I don't know if you want to go into that. Is that relevant to this book? What What, what do you mean specifically? The, the concept of empire of the wheel and and its goddess and and all that. Ah, uh, yes, that. <laughs> you mean Hecate? Yeah. Um. Yeah, that's the funny little thing about all my books, these nonfiction books, is that she's there mm. and she turns up. I'll I, I'll tell you. She turns up when I'm not looking for her. When I did, when I started these secret missions books, I thought, okay, I'm done with the Empire of the Will trilogy. Um, I'm on to something else, and it turns out that the lady wouldn't have that. Mission, yeah, <laughs> secret missions one covers a major Hecate association, mm-hmm. and then I thought, well. Secret Missions 2, this Burton book, there can't be anything in there, right? Oh, was I wrong? Um, There happens to be. um, It's a little bit smaller than in Secret Missions 1, but again, she's there. Mm. And um, it's it's very interesting how this Hecate thread really... I mean, she's even there in my first nonfiction book I did back in 2007 called Latitude 33, Key to the Kingdom. Oh, the Disney book. The Disney book, the Disneyland book, and it's just she's she's there. And gosh, what do you say about that? That you know the books say a lot about it as far as the details. 
but uh, you know, in a general sense, you're right. It's, yeah, she she's always reminding me. You know, here I am, and uh, yeah, because it was an ancient empire, and right. we are we are looking at traces of ancient empires here. Um, right. Well, and the Phoenicians were associated with Hecate worship, mm-hmm. um, and Hecate is a goddess who was considered very, very old to the ancient, original, old Egyptians. Now think about that. She's considered what's uh, called one of the Chthonic, which is where Lovecraft, of course, draws his, you know, Cthulhu uh, oh. etymological theme. Um, Chthonic, the Chthonic gods are the old, old elders, mm. and um, you know, so her roots go way, way back. So it's not. You're right. It's not surprising that when we're talking about and looking at these lost civilizations, that we're going to find her there. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, we say she and her, maybe she represents something like electricity, an energy, a force that, you know, uh, electricity, it, it does a lot of good. It powers our civilization, you know. And, but then on the other hand, if you mishandle it, it can be deadly, right? Mm. So, um, but yes, she's there. <laughs> right. She's definitely there. Yeah. Well, we live in an electric universe, so she's everywhere. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to have uh, programs on the theory of the electric universe, the Thunderbolt people. But uh, back to your book here. I admit it's very peculiar. And, uh, and as an investigator, as a detective, I can understand why it piqued your uh, curiosity and, and uh, focus that Mr. Burton put this uh, translation in at the, was it the, at the end of the book, footnotes? He, he put the English translation of Manuscript 512 as its own appendix in his, appendix. Yeah, in his two-volume book, Explorations in the Highlands of Brazil. Now, this was something that was done before the mysterious lost period. Okay, but without explaining or validating. Without explaining, exactly. He just kind of, he kind of, and I went through the uh, the manuscript Explorations of the Highlands of Brazil, looking for reference to the manuscript, looking for reference to the lost city, um, and I just, I didn't find it, and it's very. It's a very curious thing, in my opinion. It's as if he's giving you a foot stomper mm. to those who read between the lines and are smart enough to see. And it, I don't think it takes a genius with him putting that in the manuscript that that's what he was saying. He's like, look, this is what I was looking for. And, uh, you know, maybe it was some type of surveyor's guide as to, you know, if, if you really dug into that book of his, maybe there's clues there that, you know, in the amount of time. You know, I allotted to looking through this, you know, I was trying to get this particular book done to get the general theory out there. Um, Maybe he does give clues as to where it was at. Um, I also argue that were it not for what Richard Burton was looking for and doing in South America, were it not for this lost expedition that I speculate he went on, the whole Colonel Fawcett episode would never have happened. I think Fawcett was uh, his his search and his expeditions were a direct result of the Burton exploration. Okay, for all the people who, who are not familiar with that, mm-hmm. could you give a, a short, brief version of that? 
Yes, Colonel Fawcett is an interesting uh, was an interesting guy in the late 19th, early 20th century, who disappeared. He's most famous for disappearing uh, in 1925 in Brazil, in the jungles of Brazil, looking for mm, a lost city. Mm. Now there is a city. Uh, excuse me. There's a movie coming out soon, uh, based on a book titled "The Lost City of Z" by an author, David Grant. And Z was the city that Fawcett was looking for. Now, in my book, I go into the significance of Fawcett calling his lost city Z because it ties, in my opinion, directly to Burton's research leading up to his time in South America. And I go into that in the book. I go into what I think Z was, um, and and it reveals that maybe, you know, Fawcett's city, you know, there's some information out there. That Z as in the letter Z. The letter Z, mm, yes. Okay. Mm. And uh, anyway, uh, not to get det- uh, sidetracked off on Colonel Fawcett, because you can look him up. People can do a search, yeah. and, and they can look up this lost city of Z. Brad Pitt was going to be in the movie. Now he's not, but the movie is happening, and it should be really interesting. Mm. Uh, but um, this uh, this whole thing about... This lost civilization was drawing, you know, guys like Burton, guys like Fawcett, even the brother of Ian Fleming, the creator of the James Bond character and series of books. So here you had British intelligence types, you know, drawn to this whole lost city motif in South America, and you have guys who are interested in esoteric sciences and ancient hermetic and alchemical history and mystery drawn to South America looking for these uh, remnants of these lost civilizations mm. and um, it uh, you got to ask yourself why you know what's going on uh, I was going to ask you that actually but uh, now that you mention it why? Why would they send? I mean, there's so many remnants of ancient civilization. What particularly piqued the curiosity of the British intelligence here? Well, uh, obviously they're after something in particular. Yeah, the British intelligence interest is actually not that complicated. Okay. Um, you know, in the 19th century, and again, this is something that's in uh, Empire of the Will Two, Friends from Sonora, which we talked about. Mm-hmm. You you had a lot of German nationalist activity. That was really the beginning of uh, the German presence in South America was the 19th century. I mean, that's when it really stepped up. And going into the 20th century, you know, it becomes even more obvious why British intelligence would be interested in <laughs> what are the Germans yeah. doing in South America. Mm-hmm. But not just South America. There, there was also sources of oil in Mexico in the, you know, that turn of the century period, 19th into 20th. And, you know, the British, you know, they were getting their oil from there as much as the United States was. And, of course, this was the industrial era. And, you know, the, it was a resources thing, uh, a vital resources thing. And, a put, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, the upcoming enemy in the 20th century wars. So, yeah. uh, you know, it's it's natural. It makes perfect sense of British intelligence. Now, the reason that you get the hermeticists is the ancient civilizations and the technology that they believed mm. these ancient civilizations possessed, and they were always looking for the remnants of this technology to revive it. 
No, but at this point, uh, we are used to thinking that the German hermeticists were, or occultists, they were not all hermeticists, but that they had this more technological approach to things. But now you're saying that even the British... Um, oh, the British and the United States. Um, I, uh, not to get into that subject too deeply, but um, I have been putting together a picture of, uh, which again, from especially in Empire of the Will, Two Friends from Sonora. Mm. Um, it was when I first really dug into it and stumbled on some things. Uh, but I'll be speaking at the Secret Space Program conference in Texas this October, and I will be outlining, presenting my point of view of this uh, lost civilization connection to the rise of the breakaway civilizations, and uh, the there's a United States hand and interest and involvement in okay. all this, um, very much so. And you know, so the British would have been interested in what we were doing, what the Germans were doing, yeah, especially. Yeah. But it's the it's the the guys who were interested in the ancient lost stuff where things get really intriguing. Uh, yeah, yeah. Let me validate that uh, with a little uh, tidbit that I know, and that is that uh, the the 19th century, no, the 20th century hermeticists uh-huh. and esotericists and, and occultists have had a much more symbolism focus. But when you go back to the 19th century, that's when science, mechanics, engineering electronics all these types of technology is boosting it's new it's fresh yes and back then it was much more natural to associate uh, you know to to remove this strict barrier between the physical the technological and the symbolic the the allegorical Mm -hmm. but then came this wave of symbolism well it's all symbolism but this wave of interpreting is strictly psychological interpreting everything strictly spiritual disregarding the physical aspects so that's actually a newer which means that they were more prone to take it literally and and not discount the the technological aspects of it back in the 19th century. Right. So so yeah yeah I think uh, you're onto something here. And in the 20th century, the reason you see um, this move to well you know none of that's real it's all symbolic it's all that uh, that I. I am convinced was part of the suppression yeah. of the advances, yeah, especially that after the war. The 19th century guys made, yeah, mm-hmm. oh yeah. Um, well, advances before the war. Mm. I argue that there would have been no exotic Nazi technology had it not been for this mysterious 19th century organization called NIMSA. Yeah, but the symbolic, inter- no, no, the allegoric interpretation is better to say because everything is symbolic, even the physical information mm-hmm. it was hidden in symbols. But this allegorical spiritual interpretation got a huge boost after the war. And that dovetails with the suppression of the science before the war, mm-hmm. the, the Tesla science, the vibration science. So, yeah, uh, there may be a deliberate conspiracy there, actually. <laughs> oh, sure. But, but I, t- see, to me, it's important to make the distinction mm-hmm. that all of this stuff that we talk about now as regards the secret space program and the breakaway civilizations, again, not to get too deep into that, um, this a lot of people are under the impression that it didn't get started in earnest until after World War II, and that is a huge mistake. Sure. This stuff got started in earnest 
before 1900. Oh, yeah. This stuff was starting in the 1850s, okay? Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm saying the NIMSA and the, these mysterious groups, um, the, the, when, the, when the Nazi scientists, the German scientists that then eventually started doing this stuff for the Nazis, um, you know, were doing this stuff as early as the 1920s, they were being directly influenced and guided by these mysterious uh, groups that were that had been operating for you know sixty or seventy years, and there is a a uh, a tendency for people to think that all of this that we're talking about didn't really get started till after World War II, mm. and um, I I try to present the evidence and uh, argue that no 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 it uh, it it really. It started long before then, yeah. 50 years before then or more, 100 years. Oh, yeah, there's so much uh, indications and evidence for that. Now, what I was saying is that uh, after the war, there was a boom of this allegorical interpretation, yes. this psychological. And yes. In fact, there seems to be like mm -hmm. the technology goes black. Yep. And uh, there's a much more clearer distinction between materialism. Uh-huh. Uh, oh, if you believe in technology and science, you do not believe in these spiritual things, and and the opposite. Right. There's a huge division. Yeah, a division. That's the word. You know, that has an interesting origin. I'm glad mm -hmm. you brought that up. This division that, that arose, um, that has a direct uh, connection to my Burton book. Uh, when you when you go back to the history of the Royal Society. Right. Uh, you know, the Royal Geographical Society, the Royal Astronomical, the Royal Society, these scientists. Yeah. Um, there was uh, a particular year that was a pivotal year, and that was 1830. Up until 1830, the what they called philosopher scientists, mm. the science-minded guys who didn't put a division between the allegorical, who who were just as equally, you know, Isaac Newton was every bit yeah. as much the alchemist yeah. as he was an astronomer. Okay, an astrologer. Yeah, and, exactly. And up until 1830, these philosopher balanced. Scientists, I call them, okay, uh, 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 full spectrum scientists and thinkers. These guys outnumbered the technician scientists yeah. in the Royal Society until 1830. Now, what happened in 1830, and I go into this in the Burton book, Ooh. what happened in 1830 was that you had a monarch who wanted, um, uh, uh, who had, prior to that, had, had wanted to suppress the whole Stuart claim to the throne right. before then and had gotten in there and had manipulated records and such and had manipulated the culture of the royal society so that by 1830 what happened was the technician scientists finally outnumbered the philosopher scientists who founded the royal society yeah, yeah. by the occultists um, all of them the, the technician scientists who uh, uh, disdained the philosopher scientists, they outnumbered the philosopher scientists and finally took control of the Royal Society. And therefore, after that, after 1830, to be an officer of the Royal Society, a member of it, you had to be a pure professional technical scientist. Yeah, a materialist, right? Yeah, you, a materialist. And I argue that that was a huge detriment. Mm. And that was the beginning of today, 
you know, today's worship of materialist scientists really began with what happened to the Royal Society in 1830. Now, I also argue that the people behind Burton as a secret agent for a hermetic organization, they were the philosopher scientists of the Royal Society who had to kind of go underground right. with these suits because the the limited materialist scientists would have wanted no part of it mm. and um so that explain that that right there is the origin of what you're talking about particularly in the post-world war ii era of you know a real scientist doesn't think about this other stuff mm. right and those who think about this other stuff can't really claim to be a real scientist that's where its roots are. It goes back, you know. Yeah, it's so interesting. I didn't know that. I knew that during the 19th century, this division, but 1830, you can actually pinpoint it. Yes. And it, and it, of course, had political reasons, as always. Oh, gosh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why. And that was really the beginning of this whole, uh, this whole, uh, uh, I call it the damn priesthood. Met, um, whatever of science. Yeah, in, uh, let me just interject. It's called scientism. This yes. uh, fundamentalistic uh, faith base. Well, and and the whole academic thing, you know, at least in the states where uh, careers are considered yeah. before truth. You know, mm. these guys, they, you know, they've got houses, they've got mortgages, they've got families, kids to put through college, and they've got reputations, and they've got their books to sell, and, you know, if you go looking for truth, you're going to upset what their theories are, and then they might lose that. Yeah, this is why we're so important with people like Rupert Sheldrake. We're going to have a series, actually, on the science delusion, the delusion that the ideology of materialism equals truth. Uh Therefore, you do not have to apply the scientific principle on that ideology, which, of course... <laughs> it's a short circuit, uh-huh. but we're losing ourselves in something in other in- interesting distraction. But yes, we are. But back to track. Uh, you actually answered my question uh, that I had prepared next, which was who was this hermetic group? But you don't have to say any more than the Royal Society because it gives itself. Because if we look at these people who was a member of the, what you call the philosopher scientists, yes. which is a good word actually, because a philosopher is not what did. Not not mean what it means today. Right. Today, philosophy or a philosopher is someone who's studying what people yeah. have thought through the history. Right. <laughs> it's a kind of idea history. But back then, it was a lover of wisdom, as Pythagoras coined it. It was an alchemist, an initiate, an yes. hermetist. And well, to clarify, when we're talking about you know uh, who it was, um, here's the thing: the the hermetic group that. I argue that Burton was recruited by and working for. Mm-hmm. We really don't know who. We don't know this group's identity, their name. It certainly included the philosopher scientists of the Royal Society, mm. but it, but it doesn't end there. What it is is. Oh no! I know these. Yeah, these hermeticists were part of this secret covert organization, Brotherhood, whatever you want to call it. I hate to use the word Brotherhood because that gets into some other yeah, theories yeah. I, I disagree with. Okay. But this secret group, they had their members in the Royal Society. They had their members in Freemasonry. They had their members in British intelligence. They remain a mystery. And they go back – Yeah, they, well, not so much actually because um, – 
Well, they do, but uh, today we know not uh, not their personal identities. You can identify them as a you know from man to man. Yeah. I'm talking about the organization itself. Yeah, looks like it at this point. I couldn't put a name on the organization. Yeah, well, um, I think that uh, uh, this actually this is a funny synchronicity because we just had a Norwegian on who's cracked some huge codes. And uh, I, I know this sounds very old and tiresome, but believe me, it is innovative. It's in Shakespeare. Oh, excellent. And, uh, yes, uh, you, you ought to, to check out these programs uh, because uh, what he found is that uh, this group you're talking about is probably the same group that goes back to Francis Bacon. And uh, ah, yes. they invented they invented the Invisible College, Elias Ashmole. Yes, of course. And uh, which led to the Royal Society. And there was a, a clique, uh, a, a, an inner circle, if you like, within exactly. masonry, within uh, Rosicrucianism. Actually, the real Rosicrucians, the original Rosicrucians, but of course, before that, they were <laughs> not called Rosicrucians. And these people, right. these people, we can identify many of them. And King James, of all people, were also involved. This, I'm just throwing it out here now yes. as a teaser for you. I discuss some of these very people that you just named. You do? In the Burton cool. book, yeah. Elias Ashmole. Exactly. And- and, yes. and some of this stuff. You're absolutely right. These are the people. And if you look at uh, the history of science, you'll see that when the philosopher scientists uh, dominated, all sorts of inventions and discoveries were done. Yes. Like uh, the people who, who uh, you know, the, the Kepler and uh, all these people with a telescope and uh, groundbreaking, uh, you know, going away from the old Catholic suppression and into the Renaissance and into the Reformation and into the Enlightenment. So, so yeah, yeah, it's the same uh, group. I'm convinced that you're on on the track of here. Oh, absolutely. And but why? Why? Yeah, why would they send uh, Burton then down to South America? Because he was one of them in spirit. Burton himself, from the time you see Burton, I go into mm-hmm. this in the book. Burton was very likely raised by an alchemist father. And this is something that the biographers hint at, but none of them really suggest it. And I think it's obvious. His father was an alchemist. He was, you know, he was he was dragged around France and Italy specifically to places that are associated with the history, uh, the known history of uh, European alchemy. Alchemists, and when he was when he went to Oxford, he was introduced to Kabbalah. Burton was a philosopher scientist himself, who uh, actually, amazingly, even though he was quite open about his interests, he still um, maintained and earned the respect of those materialist scientists of the Royal Society because he could do just as good as they, if not better than they, at their own game. He was smart enough. Burton was smart enough to to know to be a materialist with the materialists, but also in the field and at heart and within his own researches to that he he knew he was a philosopher scientist. They knew he was because they had influenced him from the time he was a young man. So he was one of them, and therefore he was the guy. Uh, that and because of his incredible talent and skill for going undercover for uh, uh for linguistics you know the languages and such uh, you know um he was just the perfect guy all the way around to look for what they 
were looking for. And they could trust him. They knew that he would keep it hmm. secret. He would keep it, you know, between the people who sent him. Yeah, he was an initiate, so he proved absolutely, his, absolutely. Uh, mm. But uh, just out of curiosity, do you know if he traveled in the area around Nova Scotia ever? Well, um, w- he came to the United States in 1860, and I have a whole chapter of on that in the book uh, because that is a very important trip and uh, his arrival they landed in Nova Scotia and Halifax that's so interesting because what I rambled about just now what he found in Shakespeare this guy is that Uh they owned a part of Nova Scotia Francis Bacon and a few others I I won't waste time naming that you can listen to the show we can talk about this off air but okay there is a treasure map, and uh, they buried from Scotland. They took the Templar artifacts that they had there, and uh, went to the new Scotland, Nova Scotia. Yeah, that I cover that in Secret Missions One. Yeah. Really? Wow. Uh huh. Okay, but this is pinpointed. You're talking about Kabbalah. Well, a guy called Fred Nolan, who owns a part of uh, right. this place. He discovered a stone cross, uh, but then this guy who cracked the code, he discovered that it's not a stone cross, it's just a part of a tree of life. And this is, so far, is just wild theories, but what this guy did, Peter Amundsen, listen to the show with him, he went there and he found the stones that confirmed Ah. his treasure map. He found, today they found seven of the ten stones ah. uh, exactly where and, and these stones shouldn't be there they are artificial they are, uh, are crafted some of them have markings oh, excellent. and yeah it's all and it's a huge tree of life like you can only see it from uh, you know if you outline it on top you can see on the uh, preview of the thumbnail of the program that is particularly interesting that it's a tree of life symbol um when you read Secret Missions 1 and what I say about uh, Nova Scotia, you'll see okay. why. And uh, I, I could add also that the treasure is buried at the mercy point of the Tree of Life, uh-huh. of all things. Not kingdom, like people would assume. Right. But this is just because of Shakespeare. It's all in, in the Shakespeare place, and it's decoded, and it's verifiable. Uh-huh. And the most advanced code experts have confirmed this. It's like one to five billion uh, types of uh, coincidence uh, numbers here. So, but I won't bore you with that now, but uh, take a look later because I'm suspecting now that Burton, because we know people in the same group has been there since. Sure. And Burton may have been one of them, actually. You know, I think you sent me the link to this because this is sounding more familiar. Um, so uh, I, I think I have, and it is very, or maybe Joseph Farrell sent it to me, but this sounds... Um, yeah, I sent it to Joseph, so he may have forwarded it to you. Yeah, he he forwarded it to me, and you're right. This is very interesting what uh, he has found. And they're digging there today, mm-hmm. and the History Channel is there, and they're milking it, and they found confirmations. They found Spanish coins from... The- it, it, in fact, yes, because I was astonished. I won't talk about it now yet with anybody. I've mentioned it to Joseph, um, but I saw in his research there is um, a theme that's in there that is connected to some things I found in my California research. That's right. I remember this now. 
Um, so I don't know. Maybe I should contact him. And um, sure, he's a Mason too, by the way. Oh, okay. It, it's not completely coincidental because he believes that the treasure map uh, of these people, this Hermetic group, mm-hmm. uh, that they put the clues in Shakespeare, right? And, and they used Baker's own cipher system. That's what he used. And then he said that they put the ability to crack this code into masonry. Fascinating stuff. Fascinating. Because stuff. this is the origins of masonry. So you, as a Mason, are trained, even if you know it or not, you're trained to understand these things. Yes. That's his theory, that the training is in... in it's embedded in the symbolism, absolutely. The training in masonry and the clues yes. in these documents. But back to, to this part of the mystery. Uh-huh. Uh, time is running away and we have so many things to talk about. I'm sorry, I'm just I'm an amateur host, so I'm rambling over you here. <laughs> you do great, you're fine. Well, I'm just so enthusiastic for these things. And But my next question is, when I said why, why did they send him? I was more, I understand why they picked him, but yeah. what were they looking for? Oh, they were looking for, very specifically, yeah. this lost city of the manuscript 512. Yeah, yeah, but again, why? They were. Oh, the technology. Because it would probably have been the best example they were aware of of an extant city. Uh, you know, ruins that, yeah, would have been an example, the best example of this lost knowledge. Mm. Um, I mean, the language, uh, that the mysterious language that the, the manuscript says was carved, um, on the archway in the entrance to the city, the, um, and on some of the walls. And there were interesting towers that looked like, uh, they had been struck by lightning or possibly, you know, similar to a Tesla type tower. You know, was some type of, you know, uh, uh, artificial energy device. Um, there had been stories by, uh, reported by other explorers in other locations in this general area of cities that, that had artificial light that would still come on at oh, night. Ever burning uh, lamp. Even though the city had, yeah, the burning lamp that had long been abandoned. And, you know, maybe, uh, you know, they thought that, you know, get in there and, and, Get in there and take a look, and maybe we can get our hands on some of this stuff. Um, and we don't know um, what kind of photography equipment, photographic equipment that Burton might have had with him. Mm. And we don't know. He, he might have gotten in there and taken photographs of this place. And people would say, well, you know, now, and particularly in the early 21st century, but, but you know, not too far, you know, into the second half of the 20th century, satellites certainly, you know, and today satellites would be able to pinpoint this. But I, but here, I got in that conversation with someone recently, and I'd like to point something out. During World War II, um, there were big chunks of Southern California's uh, aerospace industry, industrial centers, Mm -hmm. that when you flew over them, looked like empty terrain, empty fields of rocky hills and trees and plants. And what they were, what they were, were urban, suburban and urban industrial centers, aerospace industrial centers, that were camouflaged by vast tarpaulins from the sky were decorated here and there to, but from the sky, uh, just an, even from just an airplane flying over at high altitude would have looked like just empty uh, terrain out in the middle of the countryside. Wow. So if they could do that convincingly during World War II to fool a high-flying enemy aircraft, well, I argue that they could easily camouflage the site of an ancient city to satellite technology 
Um, and I think that's what they do today. I think that's why you can't go to Google Earth and find Fawcett's lost city of oh, yeah. Google Earth is so corrupt anyway. So yeah, exactly. I mean, you know, <laughs> come on. It's, we've learned, you know, why you're not going to see things you'd like to see, you know, on, on Google Earth. But but you get the point. Mm. The point is that if if Burton was sent in there to specifically bring back evidence, he might have photographed this city or brought back, you know, artifacts. Right. And to answer your question, yeah, more specifically, why was he sent? I believe that's why he was sent, to find it and bring back an artifact. I, I guess you're, you're, it's not a far-fetched idea that you probably think he did find what he was looking for. Three years. Oh, yes, I, I, I do. I think he did. Yeah, could this have gone into the NIMSA Group's uh, technological uh, breakthrough? <laughs> Absolutely. That's why the, ah. the the NIMSA group was there. That's why Marconi went to South America. That's why all this stuff, you know, that I talk about in the uh, Empire of the Wheel 2 yeah. and a little bit in Empire of the Wheel 3 and that I'll be discussing at the Secret Space Program Conference. Uh, that, exactly. That is exactly why they were. Now it makes sense. That's the dot that needed to be connected. That's the picture that I'm painting. My books, Empire of the Wheel, the whole trilogy, by the way, mm -hmm. as it turns out. I didn't know that going into <laughs> it. But the whole trilogy and this Secret Mission series of books, okay, mm -hmm. this is all part of a tapestry that I've been pulling threads and it's been I've been, you know, stumbling upon mm -hmm. or trying to reveal. And and Joseph Fair will tell you what I'm actually doing is providing that nice 19th century background f for what happened in the 20th century with the breakaway civilizations. In fact, I argue, and I stand by this, what I'm finding in this my 19th century research, uh, nothing in the breakaway civilization stuff that you're hearing people talk about and write, write about, nothing, none of that could have happened without uh, what I'm finding in the 19th century without the NIMSA organization, without the airship mystery stuff that was going on, mm. uh, without Burton searching and whatever it was he found in South America. All this stuff, anything you talk about post-World War II and everything leading up to what the, you know, the Nazis were doing and you know before them and the early – all of it um, has its foundation and its direct link to this 19th century tapestry that I'm – trying to put together and reveal here for my readers right, and right. uh it just it's it astonishes me i'll tell you that <laughs> well um i'm i'm starting to see the arc now so what we're dealing with here if we are to believe people like joseph and other researchers then one of the losers of the ancient uh, how should i put it uh, antagonism the battle their ancestors so so to speak have been looking for their forefathers traces mm -hmm. And they've been doing it all the way, especially in the 19th century and even the 20th century. And then they have found, they have discovered enough stuff, and then they have used it and boosted their own. Exactly. They were doing it in the Renaissance. They were yeah. doing it, obviously, during the Crusades, because that's what the Templar going to the Crusade, you know, to the Middle East was all about. Um, they've been doing it for a long time. Again, exactly. 
to try and, and identify and reconstruct. Um, Back engineer the ancient civilization. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and they had to do it in hiding for the powers that be because they oh, were. Oh yeah, there there's been many eras where because of uh, particularly because of religious superstition yeah. and because of political suppression. Yeah, political suppression and and tyranny. Um, you know, just bad human nature. The the bad part of human nature. I'm not. I'm not a human. I'm not a humanity basher. Uh, I, no, you will not hear me say, "Oh, we're just terrible beings, and and you know we're not worthy." Uh, I reject that. Um, basically, uh, we're pretty amazing. We've done some pretty amazing things. Have we done some dumb things and some bad things? Of course we have. That's human nature. Um, but uh, I don't. I don't bash humankind. I, uh, <laughs> I I try to be. You know, there's good and there's bad. Yeah. And we will continue on, you know, with the good and the bad, and um, it's just the way it is. Uh, but I'm I'm not a human apologist. I and and I these, these philosopher scientists looking for this stuff. I think they thought the same thing. They yeah, they yeah. were you know a shadow cannot be greater than its uh, the source of the light. So obviously, right. if we have a shadow, we also have a very strong light. Absolutely, that's a great way of looking at it. I like that. Mm. So uh, before we wrap up for the break here, huh? I wanna I wanna conclude a little. So we have then these people, and I must say I'm sympathetic uh, to to them because even though there are aspects of the occult current that has been gruesome, like uh, any ideology, any religion, any people, they're act also they've done so much good and they had to do it in spite of threat to their lives mm -hmm. deep suppression uh, like uh, Catholicism would still be ruling us if it wasn't for these people Right. they brought about the renaissance and that goes back to Shakespeare too that they had these ideas and uh, in Pharma Fraternitatis yeah. the Rosicrucian Manifest well even, even worse than that Islam would be ruling us if it hadn't been for yeah. the early Europeans who resisted them and um the, you know. Yeah, but but also we have to. It belongs to the picture that uh, the early Islam had also some hermetic. They had their light periods. Oh, of course, of course. There you go. So uh, either either Islam or, or the Catholicism, exactly. the bad part of Catholicism, uh, yep. or the bad part the Vatican. of Vatican. Yeah, and, and even the bad part of Judaism. Exactly. And what is that saying? What that's saying is what, what I said before is that in any group. You know, if if you get a group of human beings together, one of them's going to be a jerk. You know, and and, uh, yeah. and what do we do? Those of us who aren't jerks, we have to hold the jerk accountable, and yeah. sometimes we got to stand up to that jerk and stop him or her. Yes. And uh, and that's just that's just the story of humankind and human history. You know, and we just got to keep doing it. Bravo! I totally agree. I totally agree. And these people, brave people, philosophers, they, they brought the innovations that we are taking uh, for granted today. But uh, what we are interested in here is to find out their movements, their clues, uh, their traces. And when we come back in part two, we'll um, look more into, into the ancient civilization, the notion of what that is all about. All of our files are free and will remain free. If you like the show, you can show support by donating $1 to help with expenses. Just use the PayPal link on our website, YouTube channel, or Facebook page. Thanks.
Okay, so welcome back to part two of the program. Today we are talking with Walter Bosley again, and we are exploring the concept of ancient antediluvian civilizations. And as we learned from part one, Bosley has uh, connected his new lead into the version of the ancient civilization we find in South America in particular. Now, you were mentioning in the beginning, and I didn't want to go too much into it there because I wanted us to deal with your book first, but you were talking about these different civilizations that existed through time. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, uh, of course, Atlantis, Lemuria, or Mm -hmm. Mu, as some people call it, and you, you mentioned something even before that. Well, a contemporary of that would be the Rama Empire. Oh, the Rama, yeah. Mm. And actually, there are people who say that the Rama Empire was – some people, I think, consider the Rama Empire as part of Lemuria or Mu. But these are are lost civilizations that – you know, reputedly had advanced technology, um, flying machines in some cases, uh, weapons of mass destruction, so to speak. So the um, Vimanas, for instance, they would yes. uh, belong to the Rama Lemuria civilization. Y- yes, certainly. And the Atlanteans, of course, would have had flying machines also. But the Vimanas specifically. Yeah, but in particular, the Vimanas are pointing to that civilization, aren't they? Yeah, the Rama Empire. And, mm. and, and that's the key to what the uh, the 19th century airship mysteries were all about, and that led, when you're talking about Vimanas, you're talking about what's been called the Mercury Vortex Engine. The Mercury Vortex Engine is what the the mysterious Sonora Aero Club, which fell under the aegis of the German Nimza, that's what they were experimenting with, and that led to the German Nazi Bell technology, which Joseph and Igor Witkowski and a few others have written about. Yeah, it's proven that Mercury is involved, and it's so interesting that Quicksilver pops up everywhere. Yeah, Mercury in rotation. Yeah. Mercury in rotation, specifically. Yeah. In ancient China, you have the, uh, I think it was there, they called it, they had another name for it, but I forgot, but it had to do with um, traveling in space. Uh-huh. as a name for this substance, mercury, quicksilver. So uh, it's t- and in alchemy, it's been uh, connected. Um, it pops up everywhere, this substance. So obviously there's something there. And if these people took the ancient story seriously, uh, literally, I mean, then um, it stands to reason that they would experiment with it in order to achieve these Of things. course. Yeah. And in rotation, and rotation is one of the oldest uh, principles also in this spiritual matter. You see so many symbols. I mean, the Nazis didn't invent the swastika. <laughs> right, exactly, exactly. <laughs> the, yeah. and, and that's why I brought up earlier that a lot of people are under the impression that um, there, you know, the breakaway civilization and stuff. This all started in the World War II era, specifically post World War II, and that's simply because most of the guys who are looking at this stuff and talking about this stuff, their knowledge only goes back to essentially the Nazis in the World War II era. They they really don't know very much, if anything, about the 19th century foundation of all of that. It, it personally it astonishes me because it's out there 
you know, I'm not the first guy. I, I got to tell you, there's there's other researchers that I owe a huge debt to. Theo Pymans, Dennis Crenshaw, Sean Castile, Mike Mott. Uh, uh, there's a guy that owns a gallery named Stephen Romano. I mean, these are people who, you know, I learned – I first started learning the details about, you know, this stuff I'm talking about, these 19th century airship mystery organizations in the NIMSA through their work. And uh, so it's out there, and um, that's mm. why I like to, to really clarify for the listeners and potential readers that this whole thing about, you know, taking this old technology and, and developing it today secretly – this didn't start with World War II. This no. has been around for a couple of hundred years. So, yeah, they broke the story, but you, you're standing on their shoulders and, and filling in the blanks, we could say then. I'm trying to. I'm, mm. I'm trying to present, you know, that picture, what led into that, to give a bigger picture and understanding of what's going on. Mm. And it goes, it goes back to these ancient civilizations. It reaches even farther back than the 19th century. In Empire of the Wheel 3, the Nameless Ones, I point out the Nimza, the, the mysterious Nimza connection, not only to the, the Germans, as it's spelled out in detail in Empire of the Wheel 2, but also how before these Germans were brought into this, it the thread leading back to these lost civilizations, which you know connect to mm. Atlantis mm. and the Rama Empire and Lemuria, and even older. Mm. Mm. Uh, let me just uh, interject that uh, in Germany, and this is mainstream, uh, you can read this in history books and everything, that uh, when the age of reason really started to, to infest in, in Europe, uh, the last stand of the alchemists were in Germany. Yes. Up, uh, all through the 19th century, they were serious scientists like these philosopher scientists. Maybe in 1830 they lost in the Royal Society, but in Germany they lingered on, which you can see also the Germans made so many innovations in, in science, philosophy. They, had, they brought so many great people before everything was falling apart in, in Nazism. And uh, what happened when the Nazis took over was that they destroyed everything. Uh, they murdered everyone. They burnt it. They, they, I mean, Himmler, he was frantic. He collected everything. They didn't want competition. They wanted to own this. And so if you have a lot of German alchemists, and uh, when we say German, we should really talk not just about the nation of Germany, which is relatively young, but uh, about the general culture of the Germanic people, which also goes a little into to Czechia and, and other countries in the area, where you had uh, inventors, great inventors who experimented with all kinds of technology. You, you have uh, traces. So there was an alchemist. He, he made a submarine. Yes. <laughs> Proven submarine. In the, I think it was in the 19th century. So you have all these uh, things going on. So yes, why wouldn't this German NIMSA group connect the dots with Mercury, with technology, with ancient? Well, and exactly. And I argue that there was very likely a what, – what am I trying to say? There was really predecessors in – this NIMSA prior to the German NIMSA. In other words, it was not just something they stumbled upon, it was something they were introduced to. Mm -hmm. 
because some of them had carried themselves far enough along to be considered like an initiate, right? They had they had passed through certain thresholds and th- certain doorways of knowledge that whoever the introducers were had realized, okay, now you know enough that you're worthy to learn the next step. And I think there was some of that involved. This whole NIMSA organization has some really murky um, associations and goes back, way back, before the 19th century. Yeah, so they kind of recognize people as their own if they reach a certain, if they've shown certain signs. Yeah. Um, In in my theory, there was a a split Um, in the 19th century, the the second half of the 19th century, there was a split. I, I'm convinced that there are uh, presently two breakaway organizations, and uh, the split happened in the uh, the second half of the 19th century. And uh, to me, the, the 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 dark half, the ones who were involved with the negative aspects of of the breakaway influence on our society um, it comes from NIMSA uh, I, I, there are reasons I go into that in my books but there are reasons why I think the NIMSA are for lack of a better term the bad guys in all of this but then, then you're referring to the German faction um, the German faction was involved in the greater NIMSA yeah, because this led to the Nazis. The Nazis are a product of the German faction of the NIMSA. That is my point in my work. The Nazis were a product of the German faction of the mysterious NIMSA. Absolutely. Mm. Well, this uh, is also something that uh, our friend Pharrell has touched upon in ancient times. Uh-huh. He also talks about this split. Mm-hmm. Uh, that has been this antagonism between two factions yes. in, in real and uh, ancient times. Yes. So you see a pattern there. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, it's like history repeating itself. And we're caught in the middle. And you know what the pattern is? It's like I said before. You get a group of humans together, and there's going to be some jerks. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's going to be the ones that you know are, are not the jerks, and they're always going to butt heads. Now, now you could also have uh, two groups of jerks, and one's just... Yeah. You know, a little bit better than the other. Um, I, I mean, there's been a lot of that in history, right? Where, mm. you know, normal people that you would consider your basic good folks who, for the most part, want to be left alone and don't want to terrorize each other, they get caught in the middle between factions yeah. vying for power, right? So, there, of course, there's some of that going on. And don't get me wrong. When I talk about two factions, which I won't veer off too much into right now, mm. but when I talk about two factions, I'm not saying it's pure bad guys and the other guys are, are – pure good guys what i'm saying is the nimza guys are pretty dark Mm. they they are in my view in the bad guy camp the other faction is probably realistically more neutral where if they are in resistance to the nimza but if that resistance helps the rest of us out great they're willing to do it but if that resistance to nimza affects us neither bad nor good they're, I mean, they're they're about they're doing their own thing is my point, and so you know they're just you know, but that's what I mean by that. Just to clarify that, but the Nimza, 
the Nimza faction is the one that has the roots reaching way, way back into this this antediluvian past we're talking about. Mm. But uh, obviously, human beings, like we, we were touching upon in part one, have mm-hmm. in themselves both uh, what we could call bad and good. Of course. Which is, which is simplistic. But you could also talk about, and this is what many people who listen to this will associate, you could talk about the energy, uh, because a good person can be led astray, and sure. a bad person can can heal yes. and, and grow. Yeah. So the question is, do you think one of these groups were involved with a bad kind of energy, so to speak, spiritually or otherwise? Like sure. they were, like if we're talking in a magical paradigm, sure. we could say that they were in connection with bad. Uh, forces with with bad spirits with with a dark tradition in that way is that what you hint at absolutely as a matter of fact in the empire of the wheel books that's exactly what i'm talking about and in fact i stated that the nimza the nimza group that i'm talking about in the 19th century going into the 20th century they were deeply involved in what for lack of a better term we would call black magic right absolutely in fact mm. this mystery in empire of the wheel that i talk about that happened 100 years ago this fall by the way what i call the the san bernardino working we're in the hundredth anniversary of it right now this was the darkest blackest magic that you can imagine and uh the nimza had their hand in it and was at the heart of it Mm. i see well then uh, it's more easier to understand this distinction between good and bad because then because human nature isn't 100%, but you could say that what we dabble with could be destructive, decaying, or creative, constructive. Right. So, yeah. So, then I understand. But um, you're, you're talking about Atlantis, uh, I interpreted it as more of a, a particular place. Uh-huh. Did you? Well, here, here's what I think. The place called Atlantis, I believe, was the capital of this Atlantean civilization, the Atlantean League. Right. They, of course, spread out, and they had their colonies, right? Mm. But there, of course, was. I, I believe this. I'm convinced of this. This is what I embrace presently and have for a long time, is that there was indeed a place called Atlantis, and they spread their culture as wide as they could throughout the world, like like you know the superpowers have done you know, our entire lives, right? And before and longer. Mm. Uh, it is uh, well Atlantis is uh, I think a Latinification but the the words that the letters that you can see in both Egyptian and uh, Maya uh, culture according to Augustus Le Prongeon uh-huh. I don't know how you pronounce the names is A-T-L-N yes that's uh, that's and, and of course in the ancient times vowels were not supposed to be written anyway right uh, they were magical. So um, uh, when you fill it in, it becomes Atlantis. And he, he argues in his book that you should really check it out if you ever come across it. It's so detailed. He was a professor and he spent his lifetime on this. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I'm basically familiar with Laplange. Okay. And he he shows here even the swastika, everything. Egypt and Maya, he argues, mm. is two manifestations of the same root of course. civilization. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. And then we understand why the Hermetists would be interested, because they, I mean, even the god Hermes is a Greek version of the Egyptian god, yeah. Tooth, 
which they themselves looked at Egypt as their origin, philosophically, traditionally. So when they start to realize that we have traces of that in South America, it makes sense that they would send people down there. Absolutely. But one thing you didn't mention, and uh, but every time I raise a point, you're saying you, you're, you're covering it in your book, so maybe this is covered too. Uh, and that is uh, the fact that in South America, and especially in this part of South America we're talking about, and by the way, which have been exploited by the survival renegade Nazis, are huge caverns. It's so hollow. They're subterranean. Mm -hmm. uh, so is this something you're touching upon? Is this related? I mean, a hidden city? I, I get into the tunnels, the mysterious ancient tunnels okay. in the Burton book. And I will probably be venturing into the subterranean world of South America and, and the Americas in Secret Missions 3. There is a reason for me to go there in Secret Missions 3. But it's, it's definitely a topic that has intrigued me for many years. I, I, I've written about it in my fiction as well. So oh. It's very, yeah, the caves, the cavern systems, very interesting stuff. You're familiar with uh, Souders' work, Richard Souders? Yes, yes, absolutely, yes. Mm -hmm. I have two of his books on my shelf right now. Right, we're hoping to get him on. But um, uh, Joseph mentioned in an interview we did with him recently that uh, he suspects that if we have to pinpoint a place where the main secret base of the Nazis were after the war. He, he's, he, he recognizes that in Antarctica there may have been, mm -hmm. but he thinks that the real hotspot was in these caverns between Bolivia, Peru, uh, Argentina. And uh, if the Germans have roots, uh, well, they do, they have roots to, to these places, it stands to reason that this is something that has been discovered, obviously, before the Nazis fled. There. Of course, yes. <laughs> and if the yeah. And I would argue that again, when you read what I wrote about South America and the German activity there in Empire of the Will, Two Friends from Sonora, I argue, and in my other work, I argue that the Nazis learned everything they learned about South America from the 19th century German. NIMSA group mm -hmm. Who? and and why and even why mm. and and why they would have learned that because they were all over South America they were all over these areas you're talking about and and they were searching for these the, these places and um, again in in uh, Empire of the Wheel 2 I get into um, the fact that it was these 19th century Germans exploring down there, buying property, establishing locations. That uh, that was how you know the Nazi regime learned about all these places in the in in the first place and had access to them. So yeah, yeah, definitely, I I would agree that that would be more likely where um, these secret bases are. I would agree with Joseph and you on that wholeheartedly. Uh, and uh, number two in that series is the is Friends from Sonora that we covered uh, last yes, time. Yes, yeah. Mm. But, uh, but but I want to get to the fact that uh, if we look at the ancient myths, they, they do speak about uh, people going underground, oh, yeah. connections to the oh, underground. And, and, and I didn't mean to mislead uh, listeners. The 19th century Germans is 
are, are not the only guys by any means, and it, the, these stories didn't originate with them. You're absolutely right. These stories date back to the Spanish conquest. They date they date back to ancient times. Absolutely. Mm. And then, and many also speculate that uh, there were people from the Indians who who, who hide when the when all hell broke loose. Yes. Uh, with the conquistadors. And uh, yeah, El Dorado we mentioned, and that the gold was underground and, mm-hmm. and all that. Yes. But uh, what's your take on this? But this isn't a big part of the the civilization. I mean, if Burton weather for three years, can we have you managed to track uh, all the places he was? Or is it just mysterious where he was, what he was doing during that period of the the six month period? Other than the you know the the first month or so of that, that he was known to be. In in Buenos Aires, over in Argentina, mm. what, the, the, the specifically the four month period, he is alleged to have simply been crossing the Andes and going up the coast of Chile to Peru. I disagree mm. with that. I explain in the book why I disagree with it. I argue that he was in. He returned to Brazil and he was, uh, you know, on this classified expedition into the heart of Brazil and then went west through Bolivia into Peru but we that's my speculation and I present my evidence why I speculate that but it is actually virtually unknown there is not a single word that has been written about it and in the allegation that he went to Chile none of that can be proved proven that that is just as much speculation as mine is. Mm. And uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Hmm? I ended my uh, thought No. <laughs> well, uh, yeah, okay. Uh, no, I was just thinking that three years, uh-huh. such a long time, even even back then when they, of course, things took time. Yeah. But three years, it sounds like he must have really, I mean, if you're just roaming around frantically looking. Well, now, now, now he went there as a British consular official mm-hmm. so he was performing consulate consular duties he had a job there for the the, the british government the foreign office um and in his spare time ah. he was going around exploring but it wasn't until this last six month period that he disappeared into the wilderness and did not write about it so, so the first the first two and a half years or whatever that he was there mm-hmm. that's well documented okay what he was doing mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, that makes more sense then. So he was accountable, but for six months he was gone. For for six months, it really, it narrows down to a four month period. is really mysterious, really mysterious. But uh, yeah, other than that, is pretty much known. But it makes that four month period even more mysterious. Yeah. <laughs> you consider that he was in the area where these where this uh, these legends of the subterranean that we're talking about, you know, the tunnels mm-hmm. and, the, and the lost cities that they uh, allegedly connected to. And, and what was he doing? What was he seeing down there? Mm. Um, I addressed that a little bit in the book, but I, you know, I didn't go too deeply into that because there's just so much about, you know, David Childress actually found one of these, uh, or he didn't find it. He didn't discover it, but he went to one of these places where these tunnels were and explored it for a day, right? He himself went into the tunnel. He himself, in the 80s, went into one of these tunnels, and um, he describes it, so he's able to confirm at least that segment of it. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's very interesting. 
Um, and, you know, as you said before, it does go back to this. The, the, the makers of this, the builders of this tunnel system were very likely, you know, these one or more of these lost civilizations, of course. And because these tunnels, the stories of these tunnels also extend over into Asia. You yeah. know, they go. Uh, there's there's stories of tunnels in Tibet and Nepal, mm. um, and they say that the tunnel system connects uh, Tibet to South America. Yeah, uh, and uh, we have the same here in uh, ancient Norse. Uh, I mean, we are a mountainous region, so I think every every place on Earth with old mountains mm-hmm. have, yes uh, have uh, myths about these things well you have uh um in pier git yep you know you have in the hall of the mountain king <laughs> right? well, yes, that, yes. that is based as you well know <laughs> that is based on old legends too correct yes and, uh-huh. uh, and we have these f- many folk tales about trolls who lives in the mountains. Right. Uh, I don't right. know if, if trolls are the same understanding in America as here, but uh, here in the Lord, yes, yeah, yeah, here they are like uh, these right. mountain dwellers, like gnomes in a way. Right, 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 oh. and, uh, and and they used to uh, abduct uh, this. This dovetails with UFOs and stuff too, of course. But they uh, <laughs> they used to abduct, for instance, beautiful uh, women. <laughs> force yeah. them to marry them. We have so many myths and songs and stuff about that. You know what's interesting? I go into this. You mentioned the gnomes and stuff. I go into the the gnome lore and the fairy lore in my Disneyland book, Latitude <laughs> Thirty Three. And one of the little one of the little delicious tidbits that I put in there yeah. is: Do you know why the little gnomes' hats are red? They're coned hats. Do you know why those hats are red? Uh, this mushroom. This red mushroom? No, uh, well, that's one uh, story. Actually, in the lore, mm-hmm. um, it has been pointed out and argued that those hats start out as the color. In they start out white, ah. and because they drink the menstrual blood of virgins Jeez. from those hats for their <laughs> magical properties, <laughs> that's why those hats turn red. Wow. <laughs> that's a grim aspect <laughs> think about that next time you see that commercial you know uh, with the little troll with the the little gnome with the red hat right <laughs> uh, not the commercial I'm familiar with but uh... oh over here in the states we have a, a website called Travelocity uh-huh. which is a website to make all your travel arrangements and their little their little mascot is one of these garden gnomes right. you know the little statues yeah, yeah. Red, mm-hmm. yeah. And, uh, <laughs> if, you know, if people only, and I, and I talk about that and write it in my Latitude 33 book that why the gnomes had is red. And it's a little gruesome, but, uh, well, inadvertently, you just, uh, perverted a whole culture because in Norway, you don't know this probably, but uh, the red, uh, gnome hat or cap or what you mm-hmm. call it in, in English is a symbol of the Norwegian because when we were occupied by the Nazis, uh-huh. We used uh, different symbols to, to, to manifest that we were subversive, that we were against them. Right. And one of them was to wear this red, uh, I mean, all the kids do it uh, every, every, you know, in the wintertime. It, it's a typical uh-huh. symbol in Norway going far back, even before the, the Coca-Cola version of Santa Claus. 
Right. So, um, yeah, so <laughs> the innocent small children, they wear these red caps, these gnome uh-huh. caps. <laughs> you know what's interesting, though, too, and it's it's on the theme of what we're talking about here, yeah. the Atlantean League, and David Childress can get into this even more deeper, mm-hmm. but the Atlantean League was apparently known for the red caps that they wear. Oh, wow, it's that old. They yes, and and of course and and it has been said that the Phoenicians, the red cap that yeah. they would wear. Yeah. Um the Stygian cap or whatever mm. comes from the red caps of the Atlantean League civilization. That makes sense. Mm. Yeah. So maybe uh Maybe that says something that they're, you know, about the Atlanteans and <laughs> why their caps were red. I don't know. <laughs> it's very interesting when you get deep into this, this yeah. lore, as you uh, Symbolism has been one of the main version to reconstruct the lost lore. And uh, yes. the, the genius thing about symbolism is that you can cover... You, you know, I don't know if you have this saying, but we have a saying that says that uh, a picture says more than a thousand words. You probably have the same thing in English. Now, say that again. A picture tells more than a thousand words. Yes, yes, we do, yeah. But a symbol tells more than a thousand pictures. Oh, I like that. Uh, Yeah, and that's how you can compare so much information like uh, they say that in the ancient times in Egypt when uh, they re- the, the decay were, were setting in uh-huh. they felt that they needed to preserve the books of tooth uh, the books of Hermes yes. and so they created uh, this is the legion then that they created the tarot system as a way to ah, yes, preserve yes. The, the keys to the cosmos and uh, if you were worthy if you were on track if you're uh, not a dabbler or corrupt uh, but someone who was pure who connected with the essence you would unlock the key right uh, and you could then regain everything could die out everyone could die but you could regain the inside of uh, obviously back to Atlantis because maybe no, people don't know this but the hermetic and many of these esoteric traditions on earth they all claim to go back to the, the ancient civilizations yes yeah and Atlantis the antediluvian civilizations mm-hmm. in Atlantis but we're talking about the location and I'm glad you backtracked <laughs> from a particular place to a civilization because then we are in agreement because if you have an advanced city, you would obviously have an advanced civilization. Sure, absolutely. <laughs> but the question about the location is interesting. It has been, of course, debated for hundreds of years. But what's your take upon the Antarctica as uh, part of this location? I I have been intrigued with that ever since. It makes a lot of sense to me mm. that the the place Atlantis, the continent Atlantis, would have would be what we call Antarctica. It just makes a lot of sense to me. Mm. So I uh, I kind of embraced that when I first heard about it. Uh, you know, I didn't hear about it till the mid to late nineties, and I really embraced that idea because I it makes sense to me. I do think that if you know if Atlantis was a place, it's under that ice in Antarctica. Mm. That uh, is really a frightening thought because, uh, as we know, and we're going to have a series of interviews tomorrow, actually, I'm going to interview a scientist who's going to account for something about these uh, polar mysteries. But we know that the polar regions are occupied today by the military-industrial complex and it's so off-limits. I could tell you things. I may do it offline. 
about because we Norwegians we have long ties to the poles. I have no idea why. Maybe because we were seafarers and many were fishing for whales and stuff. But mm-hmm. we have had, uh, as you probably know, explorers who's been in sure both places. And it's still a thing in Norway. If you're like macho, if you're like uh, in the proud tradition, yeah, you you have to go on ski to the North Pole. <laughs> to the South Pole. <laughs> cool. So we have people doing that all the time. They're even traveling there for like a manhood thing. We even have a woman, a scientist, and she was very uh, in the news. But I know personal people who, who's been there and uh, what they have reported is is just terrible. And mm. people who has been uh, disappeared uh, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, there's a lot of UFO rumors, and right, right. Uh, so we're, we're speculating maybe if there was an advanced civilization in Antarctica, uh, the Germans could have found something. Uh, and uh, now that the Americans are, are covering that area, they could have found something, and and that's what I don't like. <laughs> because it means that it goes right into the hands of the breakaway civilization. Sure. Uh, not much good comes from that. Uh, and like I said, you know, uh, the degree of that not much good depends upon, you know, which civilization has their uh, their hands in it. But uh, you're you're right. We are certainly, you know, the co- the common folks who are outsiders. You know, we are we may be the beneficiaries of of it we may not be mm. you know um you're you're right there cuz that that place is one of the most off limits places on earth if not the most off limits place it's uh it's very interesting now you know yes there are realistic uh, reasons related to weather and terrain as to why access there is limited, but when you think again, here we are in this 21st century, early years of the 21st century, and the technology, you know, why is it still so difficult for people to go to and from Antarctica? Yeah, that, right? that's one so, thing. But why? I mean, go to Google Earth. You see cartoon pictures of of the poles. They don't cover it with real pictures. It's still censored. Right. Uh huh. So, what is it they, uh, yeah. you know, are doing down there? What have they found down there? That, to <laughs> me, that's it has everything to do with what they've found down there. Yeah. If we get Hoagland on, when we get big enough, uh, maybe we will get him on. And he uh, reported a story that uh, I explored a little where was mentioned at least by Joseph, and that was all these scientists who got sick because they have, we know, they have found something. There were reports. I think Lake Vostok is one of the places. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, they found, because the thing about Antarctica is that it's so hollow. It's uh, And I'm not talking about hollow earth right now. Uh, right. Even without that, it's hollow. It's full of caverns. Yes. And you don't have to do much mining if you have access to them. And this is interesting because Antarctica is so close to South America, mm-hmm. which the Nazis exploited. Yes. But then it kind of also ties together with uh, these civilizations in South America that if there were remnants of Atlantis, survivors of Atlantis, they really didn't have a long way <laughs> to go. Right. Uh, going to South America <laughs> was the logical choice, right? Yeah.
Um, and then, uh, you know, and if they didn't, if they didn't hop across, uh, you know, to what we call Tierra del Fuego, there, there was New Zealand and Australia not too yeah. far off and the, and the South Pacific Islands, mm. you know, and of course we, those cultures are tied in with the mysteries of ancient South America. So, mm. uh, absolutely. It makes sense that the reason they're tied in with these mysteries is because they are the survivors of, uh, Atlantis. Mm. But, uh, uh you, you're saying that mainstream regards South America as just uh, a few thousand years old. Yeah. Yeah. Why do you think it's older? Well, because of what we talked about earlier about all these sites around the world, not just in South America, where the farther you go back, the more advanced the architectural technology is. And some of those places, of course, uh, they've been able to date farther back than just a thousand years. Mm. And you have the uh, a similar if not same kind of technology in South America. And it's the peripheral. There's peripheral evidence that uh, points to an older period. And then, you know, the the tradition and the lore. Yeah. Mm. It, uh, and, and then when you look at the what is known about the technology of the civilizations that uh, mainstream science and academia wants to credit, these structures with it's ridiculous mm. it's absolutely ridiculous and then let's not forget what i said earlier and what other sources have pointed out for hundreds of years when the the spaniards of the conquistadors of pizarro's era asked the inca and asked the local natives who built this stuff they said we don't know it's been around for thousands of years very mm. long time you know or the old ones and you know that gets dismissed as just a bunch of, you know, they were trying to impress the conquerors. You know, it's, here's the thing. Whenever academia can't explain something, they call it religion and superstition. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we know that. Yeah. So. And, and culture. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, they, they dismiss it by that. But um, if there was, I mean, if you see, look at the traces, we can see not only in the lore that there are reports of advanced technology, but we can see it in the very remnants of the sites themselves. Yes. And when, when we had Cream on, he explained that, and this is mainstream science, it just takes 10 to 20,000 years for mm -hmm. everything to be wiped out. Mm -hmm. Absolutely everything, even plastics. Mm -hmm. And so uh, anything that is older would not have uh, remnants except stone. Right. And we have uh, stone, we have advanced uh, mm -hmm. treated stones in South America, don't we? Yes. Yeah. The the Here's the thing. The way the stones were uh, shaped, the way they were fit together... The fact that the, you know that they last through earthquake and other natural disaster, when um, the lesser construction of the eras that we know of that we can identify just crumble under those same circumstances, that right there is is strong evidence. And when you look at the precision of this construction and the fitting together of it, the precision of the cutting of these stones. Mm. You, you just you, you look at the mainstream explanations and you just scratch your head or you laugh. Um, In many cases, they can't even explain it. Take, for instance, the size and the fact that uh, some of these stones have been carried over huge distances. Yes, that too. Yes, exactly. And, and you're probably familiar with the lore that is also in many places in India, in Egypt, in South America. And, and this... Uh, 
has had a little revival of Coral Castle, but it's the explanation that they used sound technology to carry these. Right. Uh, anti, anti-gravity activated through manipulation by sound or vibration. Yeah. And yeah, I'm very familiar with that because that is something that, as I as I mentioned before, there's always a bit of your research that you don't talk about publicly. <laughs> the, the lost word. Um, <laughs> that is that is something that, uh, um, yeah, that's in there. Mm. So so, but sound vibration is uh, just a frequency of uh, all, all. I mean, everything is vibration. So sound vibration is. Something that in Tibetan places they have a very healing exploitation of this science, but sure. obviously in the military they use uh, use it for destructive purposes. Mm-hmm. They could. Yeah. Uh, so everything it, it goes back to what you said: things can be used good and bad. But yeah. when you mention two civilizations, you you kind of think that there are two breakaway civilizations today. Yes, I think there definitely are two breakaway groups that uh, are taking advantage of basically the same knowledge. Right. Are these the heritage of the Sonora and the Nimsa group, to to put it like that? Uh, In my book... In my books, Empire of the Will 2, Friends from Sonora, and in Empire of the Will 3, The Nameless Ones, I do personally, for just to keep it simple, I identify these factions as Team Ninza and Team Sonora. Now, I, 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 I'm pretty sure that you know, Nimza, well, we know, according to the source, uh, Charles Delshaw, that Nimza, and then my German translation, that Nimza was actually a, an identifier, a name that was used. I, they probably, uh, you know, used some other version of it in the last 120 years. But uh, the other one, of course, would not call itself Team Sonora. That's just my personal identifier. Sure. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I what I think is is that the faction that broke off. Here's how it worked: you had a bunch of these mysterious little clubs, secret little clubs that were messing around with flying machines, dating back as early as the 1850s. Now there were several of them in the United States, and according to Delschau, the German immigrant Delschau, who wrote about this stuff, that they were all up until the point they were all under the aegis of this secretive NIMSA organization. Now, I argue, and I present the evidence in my books, I argue that sometime after the U.S. Civil War, that a faction led by American industrialists broke away from the NIMSA control and started pursuing this stuff on its own. And they did this, they, they, they initially had U.S. War Department personnel and resources involved, but I think by the 1870s or 1880s, uh, definitely by the 1890s, they had begun to disengage from any U.S. government involvement. And by the time you got into the early 20th century, they had basically said, you know, thank you, but no thanks, we're our own thing. So that um, by the time you get into the 20th century, you have these two factions. And this this faction, this American uh, it started out as, you know, American industrialists. I would say it includes more international elements now. Um, but their focus was more on a practical nuts and bolts, 
how do we exploit this technology? How do we go about our own business and, and maybe even, you know, as the profit. years went on, yeah, profit and exploit the resources um, off planet eventually, mm. you could mm. say. Um, they were more the, the, the material – Let's see how we can just use this to go exploring, whereas the NIMSA, as I point out, and I provide the details why and the where to force and all this, the NIMSA, they were the ones, as I said earlier, were much more involved in the magic and the mystical and the esoteric aspects of this, and and they're more interested in their power on Earth in controlling humanity, whereas I think the other guys... Their goal, I think, was to heck with this place. Let's be able to get off here and come and go and, um, you know, find. Whereas the NIMSA was more, let me put it to you this way. If there's anybody who represents the, the sinister new world order who wants to control humanity, it's going to be the NIMSA faction. Hmm. And I explain that, why that is in the book. Because involved under the NIMSA ages, were spiritualists and theologists, and out and it's out of that milieu, believe it or not, some people don't understand this, out of that milieu is where the eugenicists uh, really right. popularity. And mm. what did the eugenicists lead to? That led to, you know, who embraced eugenicism? You know, and... Exactly, mm. the Nazis. And, and by the way, uh, eugenicists, you know, that all started here in the United States, you know. Mm. Um, I didn't with, know. With, yeah, with some of our creepy thinkers. Mm. And um, it, it was very popular in theology and spiritualist circles. And spiritualism with the capital S, mm. which became later in the 20th century what we call over here the New Age movement, yeah. okay, um, and theosophy – these these were all the tendrils of the Nimza and the black magic guys, the black magicians, were in spiritualism and theosophy, mm. and um, so that that kind of and and I go into that in my books. Um, but I want to say uh, to defend theosophy a little that it was such a huge movement that they had all kinds. They had also oh sure they had Nazis people who became Nazi sure. occultists. But, they had people that were anti-Nazi. Yeah, yeah. And Rudolf Steiner and Anthroposophy, they were yeah. even attacked by the Nazis. But it's interesting yeah. because the, even the Theosophists had this focus on, on... They were synchronistic. They tried to merge all traditions. But at least they had some kind of traditional... They, they wrote a lot about Atlantis, Lemuria. Yeah. But when you look at uh, the spiritualism, you get a lot of weird things. Well, they were definitely... I will say this. The spiritualists were a much worse, darker group. And the theosophists. Yeah, because they they took away their control over their self and let any any <laughs> energy yeah. come through oh, them. Yeah. Are, are you aware of uh, the, the researcher author Tim Schwartz? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I had him on uh, recently, and he's interviewed me before, I believe. He's interviewed you, right? Because he knew about your work. Uh -huh. you, you've been mentioned in several of our programs by people, Farrell and him, and but he he also mentioned that uh, yeah, there were these spiritualists who channeled some information that uh, Tesla and others. I remember you mentioned the uh, 1908 yes. Tesla spaceship. That was. Uh -huh. accounted for in detail by him. He's written books about this. Yes, yes, he has. And Sean Castile also has ventured that direction. And I, uh, I, I'll be talking about that in my 
talk at the Secret Space Program conference in Texas, as a matter of yeah, fact. Yeah, well, I was going to mention it now, uh, so we can we can talk about that now. Sure. Uh, yeah. Actually, I have one more question about the ancient before we go to the Breakaway conference. Uh-huh. Uh, you, this word names, like I said to you off air, if you remove the M, uh-huh. you got an anagram of Nazi, because Y and I was the same um, letter in because it's a vowel, it's a magical letter, it's written in ancient alphabets as the same letter. So you actually have the words <laughs> NIMSA, mm-hmm. you take away the M and you have the words Nazi. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe a coincidence, uh. but it's interesting. <laughs> but what, what I want to get at is this other meaning of it, namely the nameless. That indicates ancient Egypt. Yes, ancient Egyptian Lore and symbology and, and stuff absolutely is involved in the uh, definitely in the origin and the analysis of the word the name Nimza absolutely. Mm. Okay, so uh, uh, but but you don't want to say anything more about that. I mean, there was uh, in in ancient Egyptian law they had this notion about uh, the nameless ones <laughs> among the gods. But, uh, oh well, well. I uh, again in my in the name in Empire of the Will Three, the nameless ones. I go into that very okay, specifically. Um, oh yeah, in fact, I present a uh, a thorough analysis done by the author Sesh Hari, who's the author of a book titled The Handprint of Atlas, and and he pointed out the Oannes connection, the right. the uh, how how the nameless ones are connected to these mysterious Pishkot. this mysterious dark elder god of the sea. Right. As a matter of fact, in the nameless ones, I point out that this is the tradition where uh, Lovecraft drew his uh, ah. image of Cthulhu. Right, right. Who and he and also what Aleister Crowley had written about an event in 1907, Peter Lavenda talks about this mm. in uh, in his book. Oh my gosh, the t- it's the elder, it's the one about the. Um, I I apologize, I'm doing a brain dump on the title, <laughs> but it's the Dark Lord. Peter Lavenda's book, The Dark Lord, goes into this very very deeply right. and uh it is connected um in fact i refer to it in my nameless ones book it is connected to the egyptian idea of the with uh, without a name the the, the nameless ones mm. literal interpretation yeah so so you think that the typhonian tradition as it's called in 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 modern, uh-huh. modern version that's it yeah you, yeah you think that's connected to the energy that the nymphs are represented Yes, hmm, I see. Yeah, uh, it it's really some heavy dark stuff. <laughs> Very dark stuff, so-called chaos magic and, and stuff. And that's that's the source of the mysterious Nimza group. And ah. then they come along and they get their hooks into these 19th-century uh, German nationalists. Excuse me, the that are that are Prussian, identified as yeah. Prussian, of course, right? Yeah. And they have this vision of a of a nationalist German state, right? Mm. And they're also very much interested in things mystical and such. So that Nimza, the nameless ones, they they get these German uh, these these Prussians who are German nationalists to to uh, found their organization, which is also pronounced Nimza, but which I have translated as uh, uh, the Nationalistische Jagdflugzeug Maschinen Zahlungsamt. 
Oh, and wonderful. it would be NJMZ lowercase a. And what what does that tell us? Remember before earlier we talked about the duality of hieroglyphs. Now here we are talking about the ancient Egyptian uh, words uh, or phrase nimza, which is spelled exactly NYMZA, which is how Delshell spelled nimza. Mm. And remember I said there's a duality there. Well, there they created a duality in German language where even though the German organization, I argue, would have actually been, the acronym would have been spelled NJMZ lowercase a, the way it's pronounced, still, like an Egyptian hieroglyph, is still saying Nimza, correct? Mm. Um, and this is, yeah, this is where, this is where the whole thing, that's the clue that it, how complex this is, what they do these Germans. Yeah. Well, speaking of uh, playing with words, which, by the way, many magicians, including Crowley, uh, they they always emphasized uh -huh. etymology yeah. uh, because there were hidden meaning. The soul of the world, so to speak, is hidden in the etymology. And I see that you in your Richard Burton book are playing. We were mentioning chaos magic and Enochian magic is a part of this. And then that goes back to Enoch. Mm -hmm. of the Abrahamic traditions but I yes. see you have an interesting um, play on the word on the name of I don't know I never know how to pronounce this in English but Tenochtitlan I don't know how you say it in English yeah well we uh, I pronounce it and we usually pronounce it here Tenochtitlan um, <laughs> okay. which was Tenochtitlan we uh, that of course is um, but it hides it hides Enoch's name in it Exactly, exactly. That's so fascinating. And then, now get this, then there's, then in South America, there's what? There's Teotihuacan, or I'm, I'm sorry, in Mexico, there's Tenochtitlan was what is Mexico City today, right, okay? Right. Then there's Teotihuacan, which is outside of Mexico City. That's where the giant pyramid of the sun and that complex of the pyramid of the moon, mm. and that, that embeds Tehoti's name, or as you call Tooth, yeah. or Hermes, T-O-T, Huacan, right? right? Yeah. And I, I always thought that was really interesting. And then Tenochtitlan has Enoch right in there, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so, and then when you go to South America and you've got Tiwanaku, David Childress presents in uh, his book, um, The Ancient Technology of Peru and Bolivia. He gets into, I believe it is, he gets into a, a, a gentleman's theory who, researcher's theory about Tiwanaku itself is a breakdown similar to what we're doing here with Enoch's name and Teoti's name hmm. or Hermes' other, you know, Egyptian name. So, uh, yeah, absolutely. I think there's something to that. I haven't fleshed it out entirely. It's just a, hey, look at this. Isn't that kind of interesting? Yeah, yeah. You know? Damn, we need to have children's on, that's for sure. <laughs> you absolutely do, yeah. You, you said T-O-T. Yeah. T-O-T is the correct pronunciation of the T-H-O-T-H, -T -H, right. according to uh, most scholars. Yeah, I see you have many interesting sources in your book. Many of these uh, of the sources you're using who lives are people who we have on a wish list <laughs> to interview. And I always, it's a habit, an old habit of mine, but if I'm uh, confronted with a new book, before I read it, I often check the sources just to see that because you can tell a lot about the book if you see the sources oh absolutely if you yeah. recognize the sources okay okay this guy knows what he's doing yeah, he knew how to find <laughs> the right sources right 
So that's uh, that's impressive uh, that you have you pointed to many interesting uh, researchers, uh, notwithstanding Shilvers, but also you know people like Lomas and uh, West and and many others. So yeah, kudos kudos for that. Oh thank you. are well read. Yeah, and finally they have recognized you in this uh, area of literature to invite you on the Breakaway Civilization Secret Space Program Conference. Yeah. Let's begin with the, the boring facts. When is it? <laughs> it is the weekend of October 31st and November 1st, Halloween weekend. Of course. Here. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, in, and here's what's interesting. Yeah. And I don't think they knew this when they did this, but if in it's in, of all places, a city called Bastrop, Texas. Now, Bastrop is south of Austin, Texas, mm-hmm. which is in kind of central Texas. And why is Bastrop interesting? Because those who have uh, read uh, about the airship mystery of the 1890s will recognize Bastrop as a place that many of these airship sightings were reported. Mm. Um, wow. in the newspapers. And so I thought, well, that's very fortuitous, you know, because the airship mystery, I connect it to the breakaway civilization mystery. And there we are in all places, right there in the heart of uh, airship mystery country. Mm. But again, uh, like I said, October 31st, November 1st in Bastrop, Texas. And uh, it looks like it's going to be a really interesting conference. Joseph Farrell is speaking, Catherine Austin Fitz, myself. A good lineup. Uh, and yeah, I think so. And there's others ah. that they're bringing in. And Paula Violette. Yes, Paula Violette. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And uh, I'm very excited and honored to be part of it. I'm I'm really looking forward to uh, presenting my stuff to this audience to you know see what they think about it. And uh, it's always good, of course, to go to these things and get to hang out with the other speakers and researchers because you learn so much. Yeah. Uh, you, you said the name of the city was Bust something? Bastrop. Bastrop. B-A-S-T-R-O-P. <laughs> so that hides the word Bast, which is the ancient Egyptian deity for warfare. Oh, yes, that's right. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> warfare. <Yeah. laughs> uh, isn't that interesting? Yeah. we got to figure out what the R-O-P would stand right. for, right? I have many ideas for that. Yeah. But but anyway, warfare uh-huh. is, in a way, what we're talking about here, because uh, sure. the breakaway civilization are not sitting idly by and... No. They can defend themselves, oh. like we we know that, right? Yeah. Yeah. They, so, so your your take on it will be the airship mystery and the NIMSA approach, then? I yeah, I'll be presenting what I call the 19th century foundation for the mm. breakaway civilization theory. Yeah. Mm, excellent, excellent. Because our series here, we we have different series that we're doing. Actually, this was supposed to be part of the antediluvian series, but we're kind of tying it also into the breakaway series but we have created a timeline and your program is actually the first program in that timeline oh wow yeah cool. because okay. it's you no know, but it's a logic uh, development here right so um, okay. i'm so glad that they recognize this also uh, because the people from holland which is behind this isn't it yes. europeans yeah so the but by recognizing your role in this they also recognize it's a recognition of your work uh, that People are starting to understand now. They're go- going away from this old 70s paradigm about, uh, you know, aliens came here in, in uh, right after the war. But right. now they're starting right. to get the big picture. That's what's so good about it. Be- 
Because there was information, I think, that for the longest time just wasn't out there. And uh, like I said, those researchers I mentioned before, you know, uh, Theo Pimans, Dennis Crenshaw, Sean Castile, Michael Busby. Michael Busby's done an excellent book mm-hmm. called Solving the 1897 Airship Mystery. Um, his work is essential in all this. Stephen Romano, um, all these guys who came before. Are any of them alive today? Oh, yeah. These are all, these are all contemporary. Okay. Guys, mm. yeah, uh, yeah, all of them that I name, absolutely. Uh, and you should, uh, I can, you know, afterwards I can send you, uh, you know, how to find them because I think you would probably like to speak with uh, any mm. of them. But uh, uh, if it was, even if it was out there in a way, it wasn't tied up. The big thing now is that dots are connected, and, right. and kudos to especially Joseph and Richard Dolan and for uh, you know just first this concept of the break of sure, civilization yeah. and now this this culture this movement we we're, we're all part of creating where we're connecting these dots Um, and we're learning the truth about our own history yeah, and we're learning exactly. that you know it's uh, maybe you know in a way the whole ET thing has become kind of a fallback almost like a religion where You know, yeah. it's just easy to say it came from other beings and and leave it at that. When actually, no, it. Uh, or as I said earlier, and I'm not the first and only one to say it. We we are probably ET ourselves. Yeah. You know, um, and I I just think it makes it all the more interesting. Mm. And, uh, I'm much more fascinated with a breakaway. Well, I'm sorry, with the lost, forgotten human civilization mm. than uh, I am with ET. Yeah, me too. That's uh, part of the reason we have this ancient series. But it's so good too that we're breaking through the the taboos maybe because for the longest time it seems that the ET perspective has been blessed from above. Like, okay, people, look over there. Exactly, sleight of hand. Or look to the swamp gas. And uh, yep. if, if you don't buy that, <laughs> if you don't buy the space monsters, <laughs> yeah, go this. to the balloons, the weather balloons and the swamp gas. That's right, that's right. And then we can hide our own hand in this. That's right, mm. that's right. Hey, how did they, um, was it Joseph that pitched you? How did they become aware of your part in this? Do you know? Who? the <laughs> Not the NIMSA, not the breakaway civilization, but uh, the people who... The secret space program yes, conference yes, guys? Yes, yes. Oh, well, I, um, I attended last year's conference in San Mateo as a consultant for, uh, for Joseph. And um, so I, you know, I met Yaron and um the people running it mm. and it, it, you know in just talking with them they learned that i had been writing about the things i write about and uh i think joseph you know joseph farrell recommended that they look closer at my stuff mm-hmm. so uh, you know yaron uh, asked for the one of the books a couple of the books and so i sent him the ones that are pertinent to it and you know he Took a closer look at my stuff and said, "Hey, you know, I, I think this this is a good fit. I it's an obvious mm. fit that uh, our audience, you know, needs to learn more about." And uh, so that's um, you know, because I had written Empire of the Wheel two Friends from Sonora uh, the year before. Mm. It had been published the year before, so I had already been into this uh, this 19th century airship mystery thing for quite a while. And so I was knowledgeable of it, and I had already formulated my point of view that it's definitely, definitely part of the heritage of the breakaway civilizations that emerged in the 20th century. Mm-hmm. So, 
you know, I think uh, I convinced them and here mm. I am. Excellent. Excellent. Well, um, I won't be going. It's too far away, but uh, we're really encouraging <laughs> most of our listeners. Eventually, I think it'll appear online, so you'll be able to take a look at the uh, the presentations. Yeah, like the two previous. Uh, I th- think this is the third one, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And they have such an excellent uh, quality lineup. Uh, of guests and also the, I, I really like that they approached uh, so called dark journalist to host it this time uh, I don't know if you know about him but we're going to interview him no yeah, Daniel List oh, is his okay. name yeah he's going to be the host for the conference and right yeah I knew that I'm just not familiar with his work and I need to catch up well he's uh, he's uh, doing very good work uh, he invites the right people uh-huh. he's doing uh, this uh, kind of uh, internet TV and uh, right. we are doing internet radio, and uh, we, but we have like the same uh, kind of uh, tastes in guests, I think. Because when I see the program, oh, good programs, he's done. They are professional, those guys, and yeah. they know how. They have they have the same people on. They have Catherine Fitz. They have um, Joseph. They have uh, Lavender. They have all these people. Dolan. Right. Uh, they, uh, he haven't had you on yet, but I can predict that uh, you will probably <laughs> come on after the well, conference. I, I, I'd be glad to, you know. Yeah, so yeah. we'll see. Uh, oh. I appreciate any opportunity I get to uh, share my ideas and work with, you know, anyone who wants to listen. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's going to become a big crowd. I mean. Um, it's becoming a new cult movement, I think, within the alternative research. Uh, I think this, I think the breakaway faction uh, is is getting their own um, coherent um, kind of yeah, part in, the, in this uh, counterculture because right. it, it's new, it's fresh, it, it makes sense, and it belongs to the uh, 21st century. Well, informed. I, I think it's also answering questions that the ET hypothesis fails to answer. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and it's a natural evolution of that uh, of the older one. You know, but what's interesting is, and it's very frustrating, I think, is that Joseph Farrell, in his book Roswell and the Reich, has written, in my opinion, the most thoroughly presented theory on what happened at Roswell and what Roswell was about. That, that than any other, and he gets routinely ignored. That book gets routinely ignored, or practically assaulted by um, ET hypothesis devotees. Yeah. Um, they hate that book because it's very inconvenient. They don't want to hear mm. it. They don't want to look at. It. And here's the interesting thing. Most of the critics of it have never read it. They admit that they've never read it. They just don't want to hear anything but ET. Yeah. And and uh, you know I gotta tell you to be honest, the ET hypothesis you know reached a dead end and has been rotting and stale for a long time. <laughs> and it's time to it's time to consider. A- yeah, but 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 this is the old god and they are dying off anyway. So that's right. It's a religion that's just really got kicked off relatively recently in history as such. And it's already being, you know, killed. So or transformed or transformed. And they don't like that. And here here we are. And uh, we're taking it to the next level. Yes, uh, hopefully. And I'm so happy that you get your due now, that you recognized and, and is a part of this. Well, thank you. I I, I really appreciate it. I'm, I I'll admit that, you know, because of shows like yours and, and uh, that my readership is growing. You know, there's more people interested in what I'm doing, and 
You know, it's I, I like to emphasize that I do not – when I write these books, as I said, I have to personally justify whether a book should be written. Mm. You know, I'm not – I'm not just writing the books to have a product out there. So you'll find with my books that the research I presented is to make what I think is a strong argument for something that I've stumbled upon, something that I found mm. for a threat that I've pulled. If I don't feel like there's enough there to justify the book, I won't write the book just to have a book. Um, and that's why I refer to Secret Missions 3 still as tentative. Mm. I, I'm I'm about... I'm about 85% there that it is going to happen, but I'm not 100% there that I'm, I'm still digging, I'm still researching, and I feel like I am probably going to find the nugget I need, nugget of gold I need to say, aha, this book needs to be written. But I don't like to say it's going to happen until I'm at that point. I see. Mm. So uh, you get – I try to give sincere work. I try to make it the, the real deal, so to speak. Mm. And but this is also a trait with this new take on on the alternative research that uh, people are now fed up. I think about all these so-called insiders, all these claims, all these. Uh, I mean, it's so yeah. much misinfo and disinfo and all that bunk. Uh -huh. Now there's a standard. Finally, it's a standard about yeah. about the research quality, about not ha having an agenda. Well, you can have a truth agenda. But like you say, mm -hmm. you need to be on trace of something uh, tangible. That's the researcher. That's the investigator. I'll be honest with you. When when I when I run out of legitimate things, uh, things that I think are sincerely legitimate to write about, I, I'll stop doing it. Yeah. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not gonna just. There's not. There's not gonna be Empire of the Wheel twelve. <laughs> there's not gonna be Secret Missions nineteen. No, I, no. Just, but but you, that means you'll never stop because there's so much to grab. Of mysteries out there, right? So I'm pretty sure you'll have your hands full, uh, nonetheless. Uh, there will be something because I will say this: each time, you know, it was it was doing Latitude 33, the Disneyland book yeah, that started it, that yeah. led me to the the Cora Stanton mystery, which then became the Empire of the Will trilogy, and it was the Empire of the Will trilogy that led to the thread I pulled, the, where where the Juan Cabrillo information emerged and became Secret Missions. And pulling threads connected with that led to the Burton thing. Right. So, um, so, so you don't like loose ends. So you you find new um, thing and you track it down. It's impossible to track down all the loose things because, gosh, there's so much. What <laughs> I try to do is, is I pull a thread that I find interesting mm. and I try to present it uh, as thoroughly as I can. And I leave uh, another thing I don't do is I don't debate. I don't argue with people. I don't bicker. Mm. Um, my thing is read it or don't. Believe it or don't. Mm. Uh, my big thing is to the readers, you decide for yourself. Right. Um, I, I'm not trying to convince you. Uh, I'm not trying to change your mind if you're adamantly opposed to what I'm saying. Um, I'm just presenting to you what I have found. Isn't this interesting? Here's some facts. Here's some historical details. Here's, some, here's my speculations. But you know, it's up to you to decide and we've gone for many years where um there's a lot of people out there that expect to be told what to believe right mm. and this is what they've come to want and when you don't do that i initially got all sorts of resistance from some readers because i wasn't telling them what to think well i i've had a few books out now and people understand what it is i'm trying to do and, and i refuse to tell people what to think 
I say, here you go. Here's what I think. Here's what I think is possible, but this over here is speculation. What do you think? It's up to you. You decide for yourself. Mm. And um, that's what I try to do. I'm just trying to shed light on some mysteries that I think um, – uh, you know. another thing is I, I won't cover something that I feel has been covered already. Oh, good point. Or I won't cover in a way that it's been covered mm -hmm. already, mm -hmm. if that makes sense. Oh, very much. This is a part of the standard uh, we come to expect now from these new generations of researchers that you now belong to. But the, this reminds me of another thing. Do you get a lot of flack? Because in, in the alternative uh, community, I hate that word, but uh, I have no better. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, there are all sorts. And there are these who, I mean, yes, there are conspiracies out there, but... You know, some people make conspiracies into uh, orgy, a religion. Uh, uh, just yeah. And and what about? Don't you get a lot of bias uh, because of your both your Masonic connection, but also your previous work as um, you know, in FBI and oh, stuff. Yeah. What would you say to people who who judge you for these things? Oh, they're being ignorant. Um, <laughs> Obviously, it, but <laughs> you know, I, I was interested in this stuff long before um, I ever went to work for the. The U.S. government. Mm. I was having experiences long before I ever went to work for the U.S. government. I think uh, how I've presented my material um, since I left working for the U.S. government should should speak to that a lot. To the contrary of what some people think, mm. um, I I initially was taking flack from uh, you know the skeptic community mm. here in the states. The the skeptic community, quite frankly, um, I. A lot of them, I can't think of a good word to say about them because they're just all about bickering. They're just all about being contrary. Mm. They're not really about maybe saying, well, convince me. They're just about – they intend to be contrary from the get-go, and that's what they're about. Yeah, it's a faith-based faith uh, ideology. It Really, they're as bad as some of the true believers that they like to attack. So you know, I've had the skeptic guys. Some of those guys don't like me. And then there's your true believers who you know, some of them don't like what I do because – You're an Illuminati agent, aren't you? <laughs> well, yeah, they don't like they don't like my conclusions. The same reason oh, that Joseph okay. Farrell's Roswell and the Reich book is hated. Oh, yeah, those guys, right? I agree. Yeah, some yeah. of my books, you know, some of my conclusions are are not appreciated. But you know what I've learned? I've learned to to talk to and just focus on the people that are curious and are open to hearing my ideas and are open to reading the books and to have a discussion. Mm. The, the the kind of people that they go into it knowing yes Bosley speculates but I'm willing to discuss his speculations. Mm -hmm. I don't spend five minutes and you'll notice on interviews I'll tell hosts that you know if they want me to come on and debate and argue with some skeptic guy I won't do it because that's a waste of time. Sure. That. That just to me is – that's a waste of my time. But you do want to have like intellectual conversations about the topic, of course. I want to have conversations about the topic and discussions about the topic, but mm. I will not debate. I will not get into a uh, you know convince me type mm, of discussion mm. because you know that, that really honestly – that goes nowhere. I'm no, really, our time is too valuable for that, isn't it? And I don't expect everybody to agree with me. There, but there is a difference between debating and bickering over something and having a discussion with somebody that may not agree with everything you say, mm. but they're they're interested in hearing what you have to say. 
you know. So I'm just saying I don't debate. No, so you want the work to speak for itself, right? I hope it does. I mean, there's always going to be somebody that's going to tear your work apart. That's the other reality of this. Well, the, the, I see more tendencies to try to tear the person apart instead of the work. Oh, well, yeah, well, that's how they do it. It was better if they tried to tear the work apart. Well, here's what they do. If, if your work is more solid than they can tear apart, then they'll attack you. That's how it works. Uh, or they'll they'll try both. But, you know, what's interesting is in the last few years, not too many have attacked me because I think what I'm doing, there's not a whole lot of people out there doing exactly what I do. Mm, good point. So uh, I kind of stayed off of some radars, <laughs> you might say. And because I, I think I do pretty good scholarship as these things go in the so-called alternative community, as you say, you know. As these things go, I think I do pretty good investigations and, and pretty decent scholarship. And and I'm upfront that what I do, I'm upfront when I'm speculating, a hundred percent. I admit, yeah, tell people, hey, you know, and particularly in the Burton book, in the I think in the first paragraph of chapter seven, I flat out say, hey, everything from this point is speculation. It is based on facts and details, but it is speculation. Mm-hmm. But uh, you share the facts and details too, so yes, we can. Uh, we are free to to take other approaches to the speculation. And yes, of course. It makes sense in our own. Mm, of course. Yeah. Excellent. Okay, Walter. I think we've covered uh, most of it then for this time. I, it's been awesome. I've really enjoyed mm. this. Yeah, we have uh, interesting debates. I, I always feel that time is running away from us. I feel. We You just started to scratch, and now it's been one and a half hour for part two already. Time is always <laughs> running away from us, Al. <laughs> Isn't that the truth? Isn't that the truth? Yeah. <laughs> I will see you in time. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There you go. There you go. Okay. Well, thanks a lot for dropping by and sharing with Thank us. Thank you for having me. Yep. And I guess I'll see you back when you launch uh, your next series of <laughs> books. Uh, well, like I said, if all goes the way it looks like it's going, I might very well likely have Secret Missions 3 out by Christmas time. Cool. And, of course, I'll release the, the – the subtitle is kind of a giveaway <laughs> like the Burton book was. And, and you know me. I don't like to give away until it's available. Right, uh, so I want to ask. So uh, I'll announce the whole thing when it's ready to be released. But I'm I'm shooting for Christmas if things continue going as well as they're going in the research. Mm, perfect. Well, good luck with that. Thanks. It's been so interesting uh, as always, and we've been all over the place today. A little chaotic, but uh, I think people have enjoyed it, especially if they have followed our last interview with you. It will make more sense. Great. <laughs> and really good luck with the conference too. Oh, thank you, thank you. I'm very much. I'm also speaking at uh, something called the Alchemy 5D event in Los Angeles, the week of uh, uh, September 23rd through 27th. That weekend. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, but I'm speaking on Latitude 33 and uh, issues associated with the Disneyland book and research at that one. Hmm. So two conferences. Yeah, it was called Alchemy. It's the Alchemy Event 5D event. Okay. And it's 5D. in L.A. at LAX. Oh, one of the hotels. I'm doing a brain dump. <laughs> it's, uh, the, I think, the Holiday Inn. Yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to it, I think. Yeah, um, I'll send you the link. And uh, Cool. You know, but I'm, I'm looking, especially looking forward to the, the one in Texas, the Secret Space Program Breakaway. Okay. Well, good luck with that, too. Thank you.
Remember, folks, we have a presentation of all our guests at our website, where you can find the links to all of Bosley's sites and a survey of his books. Before we leave, let me share a few fun facts about you, the listeners. A diverse group indeed, where some trends are fascinating. For instance, we only have 15% female listeners, which is as expected considering the somewhat maleish topics we've covered so far. In time, there will be more stuff that appeals to a broader perspective of females also. But for now, 85% of you are indeed males. 50,000 of you, that's half the audience, are Americans. 12% are British, 8% are Canadians, and 7% are Scandinavians, with the huge majority being Norwegians. Then follows Australia, Germany, Netherlands, New Zealand, Ireland, Finland, France, and the rest of the world. Now, it's interesting to see who listens to most parts of the programs. The top of average listening duration is Slovenia, of all places. Apparently, you guys are bright enough to keep your attention span focused. Then uh, follows Taiwan at second, kudos, and USA at third. So, the bashing of Americans' intellect seems to be undeserved. Or perhaps we're just attracting an above-average segment of American listeners. The youngest audience are Norwegians, with 40% of them being below 30. The oldest are Canadians, with 40% being above 55 years of age in average. Finally, it seems we have quite a hardcore listening base in Argentina and Chile, with a decent amount in Patagonia. So, a little shout out to you guys. We're on to you, so just keep listening. If you enjoy our programs, why don't you become a sponsor? You decide the amount you want to donate. Anything from $1 and above gets you access to the sponsor page where you enjoy some benefits which you can read about at our website. By the way, a wise man once said, Rest satisfied with doing well and leave others to talk of you as they please. That's it for tonight. Thank you for tuning in. Your host has been your pal Al, backed by the entire Borealis team. Be seeing you. number one.